Astonishing Legends, led to thanks Simply Safe, Purple, Squarespace, Stitch Fix, Wondrium, Mint Mobile, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we introduced you to controlled remote viewing through our guest and instructor in it, Lori Williams. This week, we'll talk a little bit more about our positions on it and then conclude our conversation with her. We frequently cover mysterious topics and ideas on the show that turn out to be polarizing for some of our listeners, and remote viewing is no exception. In tonight's second part of this two-part series, we hope to address some of the questions about the process and draw a bigger picture. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Being able to alter your belief in what is real is critical in learning to RV. Joseph McMonagall, Mindtrack. Join us tonight for part two of our discussion with special guest and controlled remote viewing instructor, Lori Williams. That we are, folks. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, mm-hmm. why? What? I don't know what that. What? Why are you wearing a leather jacket with no shirt and swim trunks? Uh, I'm often dressed like that. You just never noticed before. <laughs> no, because I'm getting ready to jump the shark. Oh, I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone cares. As, as apparently, we've been jumping the shark for almost five years now. I mean, that who, who's going to tune in to see that at this point? <laughs> Hey, if it worked for the Fonz, it's got to work for us, right? Well, you know what's funny about that? The funny thing Mm. about that expression, (laughs) jumping the shark, is that 30 million people watched Fonzie jump that shark, including me, and then Happy Days ran for six more years, 164 episodes after Fonzie jumped the shark. And for five of those six years, it was a top 25 TV show. So shark jumping is kind of a compliment. Well, there you go. So no, everything (laughs) people should realize is filtered through your POV at the moment. So at the time, that was super cool to us kids. But you look at it now, like, whatever. Okay. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, though. uh, Watch any old show. If that's your complaint, watch anything on MeTV. It's all silly. And guess what, folks? 20 years from now, what we're watching now is going to be considered silly. I'm probably better well-produced, but... Uh, but yeah, it's just, you know, passage of time and all that. But I'll tell you what, whenever I hear this or that uh, jump the shark, I get the same feeling about the folks who say it. Like they'd be the same kind of folks who, after me telling them my name, they come back at me with a Forrest Gum joke, you know? I guess you've never heard that joke before. <laughs> never, never. But that's what I tell the people that that say that. Like, very clever of you. I, I've never heard that before. What a rapier wit. All right, folks, we we have a great show for you tonight. Just a couple of very quick notes for our housekeeping here, starting with some updates about both YouTube as well as our Patreon channel. Uh, Firstly, and I've mentioned this before, we're actually posting a show from our archives every other weekday on our Mm. YouTube channel from now until August 17th of this year, uh, 2022. Wow, that is pretty cool. Uh, so if you just want to sit there at your computer until August, staring at the the waveforms and listening to old shows, that's the way to do it. So uh, to, let me get this straight. Our entire back catalog is going up, right? You're, you're not putting them up there in some kind of funky order? Yeah, it's a little confusing, and that's my Mm. fault, because the very (laughs) first thing we did about two years ago when we were first putting stuff onto the YouTube channel was we posted all of 2019, Mm -hmm. because that was the most recent full finished year at the time. Mm -hmm. But now, every show prior to 2019 
will be posted by early April. Then we're going to pick up with all of 2020, and then after that, chronologically, 2021, which with those going up every other weekday, that means a new archived show or one of the older shows will be hitting the YouTube channel every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from now until the middle of August. Along the way, we're also going to be posting our new episodes, usually within a day of when they're released on our main podcast feed. It takes a minute to uh, render those out in After Effects, so sometimes mm. I, I don't get them up until the next day. Excellent. And I'm still confused about it, but yeah, that's probably just me. Anyway, The long and short of it is we're yeah. dripping new old yes. shows every other weekday to YouTube yeah. from now until August. It's a bunch of content on another platform, so knock yourselves out, folks. I know a lot of people, friends of mine, like to listen to podcasts solely on YouTube. Yeah. So they've been asking for this for quite a while. We're glad to deliver. So folks, if you just want to find us on YouTube, go to youtube.com slash astonishinglegends, and there you can find not only this ongoing series of archive shows, but also bonus content. Uh, yeah, we're actually working on some stuff now that will be exclusive to the YouTube channel, so it's a good time to subscribe. Or if you have friends who you think might like the podcast but don't really use podcast apps, just send them over to YouTube. On top of that, we're producing some new content for our $5 and above patrons at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, too, including a regular, much more conversational show called The Astonishing Junk Drawer. Oh, you like that title, huh? I did. Yeah, you came no. up with it. I think you're a genius. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, sir. <laughs> well, Astonishing Junk Drawer will have segments from Tess, a guest if we can find one, some listener emails, discussion on current paranormal events, and just general fun discussion. So we're hoping to post one of these every dark week for the main show, which means that patrons can now access original content astonishing legends year-round. Indeed you can, provided you're listening to the free show, which you're doing mm -hmm. right now or you wouldn't have heard this. We're also working on some episodes about what we've been watching lately, like Archive 81 and some mm -hmm. new bonus content when it's warranted that goes hand-in-hand -hand with recent episodes of our main show. So if you're already a patron, chances are you've heard the first show that we just referenced, which admittedly is still a little rough around the edges. But if you Oof. aren't a patron, there's no time like the present to head over to patreon.com slash astonishinglegends to check that out. Okay, and one last thing, we'd like to recommend a podcast that we recently discovered called Southern Gothic, and it's been around since May of 2018, so there are about 70 episodes up as of this recording, and it's a really great show. Yes, it is, and it generally only runs 20 to 30 minutes, and it dives into the historical backgrounds of some pretty freaky legends, and it is exceptionally well-produced. We are giving it a firm two thumbs up, so look for Southern Gothic wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, or you can even just ask your smart speaker to play it, uh, just like Astonishing Legends. Okay, YouTube, Patreon, Southern Gothic, I, I think we just about covered it all. So let's get back into remote viewing. Right, so uh, we have some more of our discussion with Lori to share tonight, but before we do that, we wanted to reiterate a few things. Uh, mm -hmm. The first thing we want to do is repeat something that we said at the very beginning of the show in part one. This series is not about the history of remote viewing. We said that from the jump, and we wanted to say it here again. From the shark jump, yeah. From the shark jump. Well, exactly. <laughs> it's not about its history, or a deep dive into its mechanics and technical aspects, although we will discuss a little of that with Lori. It's also not about pouring over 23 years of Stanford Research Institute reports on remote viewing and PSI that they were required to make to the CIA and congressional committees listing all of their successes. So, although those do exist in the form of some now declassified reports. So, listen to this. The following here comes from a really interesting summary report 
that everyone should read, whether you believe that there's something to all this or you think it's total humbug, everyone I think will find this interesting. So this was a summary of the program by physicist Hal Putoff, the program's founder and first director from 1972 to 1985. And in his report, he states, on April 17, 1995, President Clinton issued an executive order entitled Classified National Security Information, which aimed at more governmental openness to the public. And in his abstract of the paper here, Putoff says, in the classification standards section of the order, this commitment is operationalized by phrases such as, quote, if there is significant doubt about the need to classify information, it shall not be classified. And then later on in the document, Putoff points out that there's reference to information that, of course, for national security reasons, still requires protection and top secret status. And there's a quote here from the executive order stating, in some exceptional cases, however, the need to protect such information may be outweighed by the public interest in disclosure of the information. And in these cases, the information should be declassified. So what that's saying here is that a little bit, a fraction of this Project Stargate can be revealed to the public, which is a major admission that the CIA, the Pentagon, all these governmental organizations were interested in ESP to begin with. That's a that's major right. breakthrough of, they, they took this seriously and for this long and spent that much money on it. So... As a result, though, of that order, that executive order, in July of 1995, 270 pages of SRI reports were declassified and released by the CIA, which was the program's first sponsor. On the flip side, that's a tiny fraction of the CIA and governmental scientific reports that were produced about RV, or remote viewing, and almost all of that documentation is still classified. And just to restate for the listeners, SRI, again, is the Stanford Research Institute, just so folks know. Exactly. So if your complaint is, why aren't there official scientific reports about remote viewing's effectiveness or a list of all the cases where it was successfully used that the public can look up for themselves and verify, you have to realize it's because most of these RV sessions were done as part of top secret military or intelligence projects and missions, tasks, or exercises by military viewers. And the results are still considered top secret military and political intelligence. And that was the original purpose for looking into the phenomenon in the first place. So you're just not going to get a look at those. And I'm pretty sure they're, they're, it's really wild reading in these reports. But there are some you can look at. And we'll have a link to the document dump on our website. The same thing goes for why we don't know more about major crimes, murders, missing people, etc. that were aided in solving by remote viewing. Well, you're talking about criminal cases that have possibly sealed court information, uh, NDAs, or investigation details not released to the public, or personal information that law enforcement is prohibited to publicly reveal. Somewhat related, there are interviews with detectives who say they regularly employ psychics on cases, but they don't make that public for the very reason we're talking about this now. People roll their eyes and you lose public credibility. Many psychics who work with detectives will confirm this. So, with RV and police work, there is also a prohibitive legal aspect to consider. And so, like the work with traditional psychics, you can bet that RV is used, but you aren't going to see it advertised. I know. How convenient for the skeptically minded, right? It, about this, listen, uh, ask yourself, if you won the lottery, would you be advertising how much money you have now if you didn't have to? 
maybe you would, but I sure as heck wouldn't. So that, that's just me. Uh, so look, if you have doubts about reports or a scientific view on all of this, uh, many of your questions are addressed in the Russell Targ TED Talk. We'll have a look at that. I found a, actually a really clean copy on Vimeo, so I'll post that link. Also, you can find a lot of your questions answered in Hal Putoff's summary report, which we just read from, and the 270 pages of declassified material if you're that uh, so inclined, if you really want to dig in there. That comes from the CIA and SRI, not from us. So listen, just as we can't prove to you that there's something to the phenomenon, uh, nor do we care to, frankly, we can't make you go check out the supporting evidence. That's up to you. We're just telling you it's out there as much as it can be. And as Russell Targ said about the scientific peer reviews of their experiments, other scientists didn't have a problem with the data or the way they collected it. They had a problem with the implication of the data. So don't get us wrong. The history of remote viewing is infinitely fascinating and is a technique. It precedes Lori Williams. As we've mentioned several times now on the show, if you really want to understand how it evolved, look for a documentary called Third Eye Spies. It really covers about everything. It's probably available in a few places, but we know for a fact it's on Amazon Prime. I just went ahead and bought it. I liked it so much. But our focus with this episode was really about hearing the personal point of view of decades of experience and skill with remote viewing from someone that's a friend of ours, yes, because that's what you're not going to hear about in a book report from us. Yeah, it's not that we don't want to cover that history or don't find it interesting. We may someday. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, actually. Uh, and it's, it just, it's spy stuff. We nerd out on that stuff. Yeah, it was our intention to touch on this topic once this year, and we wanted to take the opportunity to do that by having a discussion with an accomplished CRV instructor, and that would be the one we've taken some classes from ourselves, Lori. Now, there are several remote viewers and researchers who were critical at the beginning of the program in the United States, just to touch on a little bit of history. Uh, mm. Physicist Russell Targ, uh, Harold or Hal Putoff, Pat Price, Joe McMonagall, Mel Riley, Lynn Buchanan, the last two being Lori's mentors, and, and many more. As you might imagine, the history of the development of the technique and its use by the United States military is long and complex. I mean, also, and we said this once already, but we'll repeat it, we're not here to convince you it works. Uh, thanks to personal experience, we're both of a mind that it does, based on simplistic early results that we've gotten with our very first forays into it. Right, and as we've said before, I just want to make a quick point. In Hal Putoff's report, he said... They have CIA monitors who have to make sure that they're not having the wool pulled over their eyes, that these guys aren't just, uh, you know, faking something to build the government out of millions of dollars over years. As There's been some implications that some people have tried that, not these guys. So you have to convince the CIA monitors of the program that this thing actually works. And what I loved about it is that they got those guys. It's like, OK, sit down under laboratory conditions and you guys try this. And they were so impressed with their first trials that they kept the program going. <laughs> these, yeah. These guys, these, you know, these spooks, they're, they're not easily convinced or swayed. They know when there's something afoul, okay? That's what they're trained in to spot this stuff. So anyway, they, they were impressed with their first trials where they were doing it themselves and got amazing results. So in any case, we did get some messages from people on various platforms uh, once part one aired. And since they are public social media profiles, we felt it was okay to share some of those here. So this is something we wanted to do because we wanted to demonstrate that this isn't just us thinking that there's something to this. 
Yeah, and it doesn't matter to us if you believe in it, that's for you to work out personally. When we say, oh, hey, we had this crazy result from this, or we share the experiences of other people who've tried it, all we're doing is relaying information. There is only one hidden agenda on Astonishing Legends, and it's the same hidden agenda that it's always been, regardless of the topic, and that's to entertain you. Mm -hmm. But we did have some comments from folks who've actually tried controlled remote viewing, besides us. These were unsolicited. Some of them were from folks who took the very same first class that Forrest and I did, one that is on the Intuitive Specialist website to this day, and listen to this, absolutely free. It's Mm. free. It's called the Free Masterclass Series, and there are links to it all over the website. Free. Totally free. You take it online, (laughs) and there are videos that tell you what to do. It pretty much matches what's in her most recent book that we've been talking about. Well, wait a second. Is it free? It's free. And I want to say that to all the people who are like, you don't, I can't afford it, and you guys aren't, and you can't (laughs) get to this. Take it. It's free. Go do it. And be serious about it. You're going to feel a little silly because the process, there's some strange things about it, but take it seriously. And when you're done, then figure out what your questions are. It's free. (laughs) (laughs) Approach it sincerely. You know, if 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 you're doubting it, you think it's all baloney, then try it. But be, uh, just have an open mind, do it sincerely and just see what happens. Maybe nothing happens. Maybe you're not impressed. Maybe you are impressed. Here's the thing you have to realize is that everyone who's done this, everyone who's trained from the uh, the, the novice, the, the non-believer, the believer, it doesn't matter what, you don't know what you're getting into, and they know it sounds outrageous. They, they realize this all sounds crazy. They don't know exactly how it works. It seems to with this process and protocol. So that's why there's a free class. It's like trying out for yourself. If you think there's something to it, you can advance. You can then, like any course, you can pay for classes. If you take it and it's like not for you, you don't do well in it, you don't think it's uh, worth anything, it's all uh, chicanery, then that's it. You know, you've given up a few hours, but it's an interesting process. It's pretty cool that we know several folks who've taken it uh, within the Astonishing Legends listener base and others, and all of them to a person had the same experience we did with being able to make uncanny observations about the practice target. And we wish we could share all those results with you, but that practice target is baked into that free class. So we we don't want to spoil it for anyone that tries it out. It's integral into part of the training. That's convenient. You can't prove, (laughs) you can't even prove the free class. But see, this is the thing. If you take the free class and you get all the way through it, and then you have your experience trying to identify that target, then you're in our secret group and we can show you. (laughs) You don't even, we can show you all the pictures of what everybody else found when they got to that target trying to identify it. It's also the, the, the where we keep the list of all the lottery winners of uh, yeah, that's uh, using right. remote viewing and uh, what they're up to and how you can borrow money from them. We're like Laszlo that lives in the closet in Real Genius. <laughs> How's that for an obscure reference? He play, wow. But he uses computers to play the lot or not the lottery. Is it the lottery? Yeah, I think it is the lottery. Till he uh, wins. He wins like an RV and all kinds of stuff. Oh, no, that that's was, uh, I'm sorry, that that was slight tangent alert here. Uh, yeah. That was a contest, I think, for some chain store where you had to send in a, a card, remember? Oh, yes, and, and he sent something. in, well, he had the so, computer print the yeah, card. Exactly. So there was like a you know a hundred thousand entries, and so he was guaranteed to win. Okay, we this is a good old fashioned tangent. We haven't done one of these in a while. I think I've mentioned it on the show, but I'm going to take it even further. (laughs) That guy, John Grise, who played Laszlo, who was also in Napoleon Dynamite, is the brother of a friend of mine, Carrie, who was a film editor that I used to work with. Carrie and John's dad was a director and directed several of the original episodes of Star Trek. And in fact, Carrie and John both appear as children in the episode on that planet when it's all the kids 
Holy with all cow. the little kids at nah, 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 yeah. nah, nah, nah. Yeah, they're in that. So including John wow. Grice, who, yeah, who was Laszlo. Okay, coming back around. Very cool. So, yes. for folks who have a hard time wrapping their heads around CRV, <laughs> who seem to have a ton of questions about it, but also seem to not be looking deeper into it when resources are offered to them, hmm. we would say do a couple of things. If you want history, watch Third Eye Spies. If you want to talk about how it doesn't work or can't work, try it first. Take the free class. You have literally nothing to lose but a little bit of time. If you take the class, follow the instructions, try it in earnest, and then still have questions, great. But criticisms of what CRV is or simply saying that it's a bunk, well, they have no value if you're standing at a distance from it and just poking it with a stick. <laughs> Give it a shot. Well, speaking of people that have actually tried it, after we posted the last episode, we actually heard from several on our various platforms. There are comments on multiple channels, but we picked out a couple to share here. So Patty Hung posted in our private Facebook group, and she gave us permission to share one of her comments here. And hello, Patty. She's We've had some uh, interactions between her and us. Uh, yes. She's a big fan, and, and thank you so much. But here's what she had to say. Lori Williams is the real deal. I took her classes starting seven years ago, several years before Scott and Forrest discovered her. I'm now an advanced remote viewer. I didn't think I had a psychic bone in my body. Uh, her classes proved otherwise. In fact, as an advanced viewer, I was allowed to sit in on other classes at any level. I was there when Forrest took the class. His surprise at doing so well isn't exaggerated. This stuff works. The key is practice. Practice, practice, practice. I stopped viewing for a while because I got kind of burnt out. I'm back doing some ARV now, actually participating in an experiment to see if ARV can predict movements in the cryptocurrency market. The initial results are eyebrow raising. Don't knock this stuff. I know the program kind of sounded like an infomercial, but I'm not sure how else she can present it and still bring people to it. Lori has put out a tremendous amount of free material, a whole lot more than most other, maybe all people in her field. And there is never an obligation to sign on for more. She genuinely wants more people to learn this because she genuinely thinks the world would be a better place the more people are able to utilize this tool. And then there was this comment on our Instagram from another listener. So excited for this episode, I have successfully remote viewed over 10 times in a row. It shocked me to my core. The key is not to interpret the images, but to just describe what you're seeing in more general terms. I first did it using an art book I hadn't seen before and YouTube videos. My partner looked at the images while I lay on a couch with my eyes closed. We had our minds totally blown. Then we asked our friend to draw a picture while he was miles away, and we all drew the same picture. The universe is a true mystery. And I've come to learn, I think that's that sounds a little more like extended remote viewing. Yeah, where you, you yes, go into a Yes, there are different or, types. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, okay, that anyway. Would be I think extended, but that, and that's the whole point. There's different types that that person I don't think has anything to do with Lori. They're studying it a different way. There are people out there that are instructing and in including Lori's mentor, Lynn Buchanan has a whole website where you can go and take classes there as well. And they often trade students and students work on, on both to uh, form their disciplines probably up in different ways. Well, uh, before we roll the rest of our conversation with Lori, let's move away from the civilian experience with controlled remote viewing. There's a lot of history with the successes the military had with it, and most of those are in Third Eye Spies, but I wanted to touch on one guy in particular and some of his most infamous targets. His name is Joseph McMonagall. He is credited with helping to locate some of the hostages in Iran. 
in particular a small group that was not being held with the larger group at the embassy. He helped to identify where they were. He also identified something highly unusual back in 1979. Here's an excerpt from McMonagall's book, The Stargate Chronicles, Memoirs of a Psychic Spy, The Remarkable Life of U.S. Government Remote Viewer 001. All right, quoting from his book, this excerpt. Prior to 1981, I participated in another project that at least in some small degree ended up adding to the project's avowed enemies. One of the first operational targets brought to the program around September of 1979 originated within the National Security Council. A naval lieutenant commander assigned to the council who had seen some of the previous OPSEC reports was enthusiastic about using RV for offensive intelligence-gathering purposes. He brought a photograph of a large building that was obviously an industrial type of building for targeting and development. The building was seen to be near a large body of water, but that was all one could tell about it. Materials were stacked on the exterior of the building, but they were general in nature and did not add clues about what might be going on inside the building. The building was huge, labeled as building number 402, and was located somewhere in Russia. We were to find out much later that the facility was located at the port of Severodvinsk on the White Sea very near the Arctic Circle. The NSC, that's the National Security Council, was very interested in knowing specifically what was going on inside. In my first session against the building, I was given a set of geographic coordinates. Now, I'm going to interrupt here. I want to explain something. They had a picture. The intelligence guys had a picture of this building. That was not what McMonagall was given. He was given coordinates. He did not see the picture at the outset. I want that to be abundantly clear. He saw no picture. He didn't know it was a building. All he got was geographic coordinates. So listen to this. I was given a set of geographic coordinates, clearly somewhere in the north, probably in the Finland or Eastern Bloc region. I began the session by reporting that it was a very cold wasteland. But within it, was a very large industrial-type building with huge smokestacks, and not too far in the distance was a sea covered with a thick cap of ice. Since I clearly was in the right place and on the right target, Fred showed me the picture of the building. So that's when he got the picture. Once they ascertained that he was on target, that's when they showed him the picture. The building looked to me like a very large storage shed, an extensive, unremarkable, flat-roofed building. Fred asked me what I thought might be going on inside it. I spent some time relaxing and emptying my mind. Then, with my eyes closed, I imagined myself drifting down into the building, passing downward through its roof. What I found was mind-blowing. The building was easily the size of two or three huge shopping centers, all under a single roof. In fact, it was so huge, I was only able to see one or two walls that ran lengthwise down the center as support walls. Even these were open in segments along their length. I felt as though I were standing inside the building and able to actually see vividly what was going on. This rarely occurs in remote viewing, but for some reason, it was happening on this target. In giant bays between the walls were what looked like cigars of different sizes, sitting in gigantic racks. One seemed older, and I felt as though it were under repair but the other was absolutely huge, beyond anything I could ever have imagined. Thick mazes of scaffolding and interlocking steel pipes were everywhere. Within these were what appeared to be two huge cylinders being welded side to side. 
and I had an overwhelming sense that this was a submarine, a really big one with twin hulls. The entire area was filled with a cacophony of sounds and loud machining noises. The air was filled with smoke from dozens of very bright arcs of light emitting brilliant blue flashes. There was so much input, it was difficult to even begin to report on what I was seeing. I did some very poor general drawings of segments of features I perceived inside and said that I thought there was a ship or something, possibly a submarine, under construction inside the building. All right, so that's the end of that excerpt. The rest of this I'm extrapolating from his book. So uh, Joe McMonigal identified from nothing more than geographic coordinates a large industrial building. Uh, again, I'm going to repeat that again. All he had was the geographic coordinates. Then he was shown an aerial photo of the building and asked to describe it further, including what was going on inside of it. The folks that had provided him the picture figured something was being built, but they thought it was a new kind of assault craft or heavy payload helicopter. When he indicated it was a submarine, they didn't believe him. The building was hundreds of yards from the water. He identified the object as having twin hulls mated together and that it was at least half again as big as any submarine that had been built to date. In the course of identifying this submarine, he also pointed out it's going to put to sea in 120 days. Listen to this short additional quote. On my second visit, I got up very close to the larger vessel and was amazed at its size. I moved up over the deck and was surprised to see that it had canted missile tubes running side by side. This was critically important because this indicated that it had the capacity to fire while on the move rather than having to stand still in the water, which made it a very dangerous type of submarine. Again, that's from his book, The Stargate Chronicles, Memoirs of a Psychic Spy, The Remarkable Life of U.S. Government Remote Viewer 001, Crossroad Press, Kindle Edition. Greetings, this is author C.G. Mosley, and when I'm not writing about dinosaurs, sea monsters, or Bigfoot, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. So 114 days later, this submarine was confirmed to exist. It was the new TK-089 Typhoon-class submarine. Some of the officers that got the intelligence from McMonagall about what he had seen said before it had launched and was proven to be real that what he was saying was absurd, that a submarine would be built in a building that far away from the water and not a dry dock where it could more easily be launched. Absurd or not, that was exactly the case. The transcript of his report on this target was reportedly 137 pages long. It's online. You can read it. We'll have a link to it. Now, apparently, senior officers in the CIA did not agree that his information was useful, and one of them even referred to it as a lucky guess. How on earth that could be a lucky guess uh, with all that specificity is beyond me. 137 pages of lucky guessing, detailing dimensions and weapon systems. And for folks who listen to this series and worry about disinformation, which way do you think that flow is going in this scenario? Do you think the disinformation is that remote viewing is real, or do you think that it's remote viewing is fake? Because isn't it interesting that this program got shut down? More on that later. Third mm. Eye Spies goes on to point out that eventually the CIA canceled funding for the remote viewing program. This after 23 years of success and claimed it didn't work. However, when Joseph McMonagall retired, he was given the Legion of Merit. Here's what the Legion of Merit is. This is a militist from Wikipedia, a military award of the United States Armed Forces that is given for exceptionally meritorious conduct in the performance of outstanding services and achievements. It's the second highest non-combatant award one can get in the military, and the following statement was written regarding 
Joseph McMonagall's service. Quote, While with his command, he used his talents and expertise in the execution of more than 200 missions, addressing over 150 essential elements of information. These EEI, that's essential elements of information, contained critical intelligence reported at the highest echelons of our military and government, including such national-level agencies as the Joint Chiefs of Staff, DIA, CIA, NSA, DEA, and the Secret Service, producing crucial and vital intelligence unavailable from any other source. So McMonagall is a remote viewer, one of the most famous ones in history. If remote viewing is a farce or doesn't work, why did he get the Legion of Merit? Why did he get that? Because what, mm. what else was he doing? That was his job, and then he got the Legion of Merit for it. But clearly, this is all a ruse, right? Anyway, this gives you a little backstory on regular people and their experiences, and then members of the military and those experiences. There's one super important thing to understand about the targets in these cases, and this goes to folks who imply that the monitor is leading the viewer. Many times, a target is blind to the viewer and the others involved. How does one identify a submarine that no one involved in searching for it knew existed? What clues could have been given to Joseph McMonagall by the people monitoring his session when they had no idea what was inside the building? They knew about the building, but they didn't know what was in it. So how are they going to secretly cold read, you know, lead him confirmation bias into saying it's a submarine if that no one knows that that exists? So you could certainly conclude that a large building had a weapon of war in it, especially in this, you know, remote base on by an Arctic frozen sea in Russia. But once you begin to accurately describe not only its very specific twin-hulled appearance, which anybody who's into submarines has seen pictures of these, as well as its weapons capabilities, and then on top of that, the date it would launch, in my opinion, it's absurd not to believe that remote viewing works in the face of a confirmed target like that. Well, you, you couldn't have uh, remote viewed it because you're just way too into Hunt for Red October. You would have well, the typhoon right class, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they talk about the typhoon right. class in Hunt for Red October. So, uh, But you've seen these, the double-hold summary. He's describing something that came to pass, and right. no one had seen it yet, at least outside of Russia. So right, right. one of the biggest criticisms is like, oh, well, the, the tasker is leading on the person that's doing the viewing. Oftentimes, all that person gets is a number, a geographical number, and sometimes everybody's blind to the target, including the person who's guiding the viewer. If you have a monitor who's helping, that right. person might not know what it is either. Other times, the monitor does know. So in that case, yeah, that's why monitoring is so important, because you learn how not to lead the subject mm -hmm. on. But even in the case where the monitor has information, the other thing that you have to know, have to realize is that obviously the tasker is the person who wants the target remote viewed. Obviously, if they knew everything about the target, they wouldn't be asking to have it remote viewed. So there's no way for some of the information to come through if no one has the information, including right. the person asking right. to look at it. Because if they had all the information, they wouldn't be asking to have it remote viewed. Yeah. I, I want people to understand that. Like, why would you pay like professional service to do this? If you already knew everything about it, there's no point. If you don't know everything mm -hmm. about it, then there's a point. And then if you learn something new about it that later turns out to be true, how could there ever have been confirmation bias or, or something leading the viewer to tell you details that no one had in their brains in the first place? That's yeah. just something I want to say about, you know, and I'm not being very eloquent about it, but <laughs> anyway. Well, no, no I, I, I understand what you're saying. Ultimately, people want a massive database, and I understand this. You know, scientific data, all studied uh, by and peer-reviewed, 
and they want it analyzed. How effective is this? We'll talk a little bit about that in uh, one of our Patreon offerings, I believe. Yes. Just basically about Russell Targ's TED Talk as he goes over a lot of this. And we're just going to kind of repeat it and, and, and talk about it and uh, some of the ideas brought up. And what he mentions is that there are studies done, but people don't want to touch this, as Hal put off in his, in his report will say, is that you're not going to get a lot of peers to review this because they won't even take it seriously to begin with. Others have, they don't want to be associated because they think it's going to stink on them and then they're going to be associated with something kind of crazy. So you're not going to get a lot of objective review of this. Uh, there is one report, but basically they said uh, there's something to it. It's not that effective. So that's essentially why perhaps the government program was canceled, but you also don't know where it went. Did it go underground? I certainly don't believe uh, everything I hear that comes out of a report that something is now not being studied anymore, like UAPs. Now, on the, on the flip side, you could say, well, I, I'm not going to believe the government about uh, remote viewing. You know, you know, this could all just be bunk as a distraction for the Russians. Uh, and again, the moon landing is fake to fool the Russians and get them to spend money. It's like, eh, okay, well, you're you're pressing my logic buttons here. But but yeah, anyway, back to you. Uh, I, I agree that there are things that just don't make sense if this is funny business for 23 years. Right. I guess the only thing I'm going to add is something I've already said is the overwhelming majority, and, and Forrest said this too, of remote viewing targets are secrets, sometimes indefinitely, even in the civilian world. So an area where you could possibly pull more data about the efficacy of it in a laboratory setting because this was studied in a lab, or in this case, very controlled conditions. But a lot of these are paid assignments from corporate people about stuff they don't they don't want the results blabbed about because this is either a lot of money for them, or it could be scientific, it could be academic, but they are paying for the results, not paying to go have a report made to convince you. And so in a laboratory setting, it's something that Russell Targ also says, they're not out to uh, evaluate the probability because statistically you can do so many experiments that it inflates the statistics if you do millions and millions of them. What they really want in a scientific experiment is what is called effect size of the experiment. You have to measure the power of the experiment you're doing, not necessarily the statistical significance. So that's a difference. And that's the types of experiments they're trying to do. So it's not just volumes. You don't want like reams and reams of tens of thousands of experiments. That starts to water down after a while. What you want is to measure the effect size. And I'm sure some science-minded people out there may correct me on that, but that's the word I got from Russell Targ. So in any case, it's all fasting, but it's, it's there. But you also have to realize most of it isn't out there for you to peruse. Uh, because of the nature of this information. It's hidden. It's secret information. No, it's true, though. But a lot of the targets, you're never going to know about them. That, that doesn't mean they don't exist or that the technique doesn't work. It just means you don't get to hear about it. But you can try pretty much everything we're suggested here for free. It just takes a little bit of your time. Oh, and on that note, we do have a remote viewing report that is pretty amazing. Our friend Bill Snavely, who found the airplane in Buka that he believes is Amelia Earhart's missing Electra 10E, had Lori's company remote view it as a target. We have a copy of that report. And on top of that, Bill Snavely has given us permission to share it. Parts of it are pretty shocking, especially considering the remote viewers were completely blind to what they had been assigned. 
We're going to be releasing a show on that report at Patreon as soon as we can get it recorded in the next few weeks. All right, Forrest, I think it might be time to get back to our discussion with Lori Williams. Uh, so when we left off, and this ties in nicely with McMonagle's discovery of that submarine, it's that quote from another prominent early remote viewer, Pat Price. This is a fascinating character. Again, this is a whole nother thing. This guy was a mm-hmm. cop in Burbank. <laughs> And he apparently, one of the most gifted viewers that ever lived as well, part of the whole original program. Again, you can see about him in Third Eye Spies. Third Eye Spies doesn't imply this, but what my, one of my takeaways from it was in terms of the possibility of this program going underground, Pat Price had remote viewed some pretty significant stuff that threatened the uh, Soviet Union as well as other intelligence targets. And uh, he died under very mysterious circumstances in a hotel room. And on top of that, he was apparently, according to the documentary, he was cremated rather quickly. Yeah, before his wife could even find out or was told, I think. Yeah. So it's a little strange. I, you know, I'm going to leave that open-ended, but you, you watch it with an open mind and pay right. attention to that. But right. the quote that we ended uh, part one on, we were talking about how a secret shines like a beacon in psychic space, which is part of what might have drawn McMonagall to find the submarine. There is no bigger secret than a <laughs> superpower building a new kind of submarine. And so all he had to do was get in the neighborhood and he saw the lighthouse of that, the beacon of that secret that was under that building. That idea blows my mind. It's kind of fascinating too. It's a little bit about what I've heard about self-fulfilling prophecy and people who do behavioral studies and self-improvement kind of things. It's like if you told your son, don't drop that vase, don't drop that vase, that vase you're holding, don't drop it, don't drop it. It's very expensive. What do you think he's going to do? Good chance he may drop it. Because you're, you're yeah. adding so, well, so much. My son, he's going to look you right in the eye and open his hand up and be staring at you as it hits the floor. Right. It's like, sorry. <laughs> yes, he's going to do the uh, gilly. He's going to pull a gilly on you. Yeah. No, it, it's just because so many people are trying to hide this that it actually causes ripples in the psychic space and shines a beacon on it. Yeah. Okay, folks, I know that was a lot, but this is all part of the discussion. It's not just rambling on about uh, what glassware we have in the store. This is all part of the interesting ideas and why we like to talk about this so much. But one thing I wanted to say that I really liked was a statement from Russell Targ in this TED Talk about proof, because he's a physicist. He's a scientist. People want scientific study. Well, that's what he and Hal are and did as best they could. And he had a statement here proof, and he's talking about scientific proof in the laboratory, proof is evidence that is so strong that you can't statistically or reasonably deny it. You can't prove scientific things in the laboratory the way you prove mathematical theorems. You prove things in the laboratory by piling up so much evidence that it is simply unreasonable to deny it. Okay, so we're going to get back to our conversation with Lori here. We're going to pick it up where we left off in our last episode, where we were talking about how when something's a secret, apparently it's easier for a remote viewer to find it when they're trying to see it. So check this out. We're going to rejoin the conversation where she was talking about a quote about that specific phenomenon. The more of a secret it is. Right. The, the more that it kind of stands out. It shines like a beacon in psychic space. Yeah. That's exactly the quote. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> do you that's find awesome. that that's true? I mean, okay, so here's an example. Let's uh, something I know we can talk about it because it's in your book, and we've talked about it over the past couple years. I think is uh, this archaeological target that your group worked on professionally. That uh, I know you can't divulge everything about it, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about that target? For sure, and I do have permission from the archaeologists to, sh- to talk about it publicly. I, I the only thing I can't reveal is where the location of where this took place. But there was this archaeologist. There is an archaeologist who spent 40 years of his life examining a 200 square mile area of ocean because he believed that there were artifacts there that would prove that there was had been a pre-Adamic civilization that lived in that place prior to water being there. But it's been covered with water for over 18,000 years. And so it was very, it was a passion of his to find these artifacts. Um, he had had no success in 40 years. So we met him at a conference and heard about his work. And I said, well, have you ever had remote viewers try to help you? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've worked with remote viewers. I instantly knew that he was equating remote viewers with psychics and that he had worked with psychics. And so I said, well, what if we put a team together and we we do this for you? And he said, oh, my gosh, that would be so great. So we had a team of 14 viewers. We had four project managers. That's This is like a huge project, a huge project. And it took a few months. But what we did was we had to we had to send the viewers blank maps so that it's just a blank map with the four corners marked on a on a grid on a graph piece of paper. And we told the viewers that targets a location. It might be even a series of locations and to view the target and describe each location that you find, but number them in order of importance to the tasker. Now, these are highly trained remote viewers. They're not like brand new remote viewers. So the best these, of the best. Yeah, these are the best of the best. So they, their job was to explore this area. They had no idea that it was underwater. And so what we do is we'll have the viewers turn in, you know, do a session, turn in their preliminary stuff, and then we'll retask them. Like, okay, you, you mentioned this, take a closer look at that. Or you mentioned this other thing, take a closer look at this, or look at spot number two and give us some more information or whatever. That's called retasking. So they're working on the same target. They haven't done a summary or a final report. They're just taking breaks and then resuming, taking breaks and resuming based on what we asked them to do. So these they're writing these fabulous reports, but the first session, they all came back mentioning something that was like almost like a cell tower. They, the description sounded like a cell tower. And we know that we're out in the middle of the ocean, right? So we, we contact this archaeologist and we're like, is there anything that's like a cell tower that would be visible from the target site? And he's like, oh my gosh, yes. He said, there's a floating naval cell tower out there. And so they all described it. So he's like, wow, that means they're on target. We're like, yeah, they're on target. So we did this whole project. And long story short, we put all these maps that these viewers had turned back into us, we put them onto transparencies, and then we created one map with the areas of agreement there, and we gave him GPS coordinates to go visit. So he gets boat, divers, equipment. He goes and he finds these artifacts that he spent 40 years searching for. He finds them, and it's exactly what the viewers sketched and described and told him he would find there. And of course, that's a momentous, joyous occasion. The thing is still going on because at the time he found them, he didn't have the equipment to pull anything up or, you know, it was all just with the divers. So he's been going back there, sometimes hampered by COVID or hampered Mm, by health issues or hampered by weather or a lack of divers or whatever. He's had a lot of obstacles, but he's gone out there several times. He's taken photos. He's trying to get the ability to go out there with a great big winch and 
pull some stuff up. They found walls with inscriptions on them, uh, some kind of writing on them. They found archways and pillars and everything that the remote viewers had described. How did he know he was in the right area after not finding anything for 40 years? What kept him there and for that long? Um, well, I, that's a part I can't really share because it would kind of okay. divulge the location. But yeah, he he just believed there had to be a civilization in that area. And he had reasons for believing that based on his understanding of the history of the area. Okay. Interesting. I don't think people maybe have uh, that glossed over them, but we're talking 18,000 years ago, pre-Gobekli Tepe at 11,000 or so. Right, which make it a very old civilization. Uh, it starts to, well, be yeah, pre-writing, uh, yeah. pre-history, prehistoric. And so that, of course, is reminding me of something Atlantean. I don't know if you can make any connections <laughs> to that, but that's what uh, we, we did a, a series on that a while ago. And, and uh, that's part and Casey. of Casey. Yeah. yeah, with Casey. Uh, and oh, by the way, another thing that Casey said, because of course people asked him to pick horse races and the stock market and that... Uh, he tried. He he gave it a shot. Just I think he was curious from our research, but he found it didn't work. Anything that was for monetary gain, at least with his abilities, did not seem to to work. It wasn't for that. It's interesting to me too. Lynn Buchanan was raised as a Baptist and then later became a Methodist minister. And when he teaches ARV, he ha he doesn't currently teach um, in person. He does have a video course on ARV, but back when he used to teach it, he would drive the students out to the casino and they would walk into the casino and he would help the students win money. But if he ever tried to do it for himself, he would instantly lose. And he said, I think it's my Baptist upbringing. I think I have, you know, I just have <laughs> yeah. a mental thing against it. Um, years ago, I met Lynn in 1996. I took my first course in early 1997. By 1999, I was an advanced level viewer. And so Lynn um, put me in touch with a man who was doing some research on precognition. And the man asked me, uh, he said, would you, I, I will pay you, I'm going to give you 50 four-digit numbers, 50 sets of four-digit numbers, and all I want you to do is create some symbols, that's one symbol that symbolizes animal, one symbol that symbolizes mineral, one symbol that symbolizes vegetable, and all you have to do is write, you know, four numbers and do a quick squiggle. And then tell me, is that animal, vegetable, or mineral? And then another four numbers and same thing for 50 targets a day, 50 four-digit targets a day. That's all you have to do. It would take me about an hour to do it. At my my then husband was also doing it and getting paid. And we we literally had didn't have two pennies to scratch together at the time. So this was a great way to make a little extra money. And so we did this. It took about an hour a day each, and we did it for a week. Well, this guy calls us and he's like so so excited he can hardly talk. He thinks he has found the geese that lay the golden eggs. He's like, oh my God, oh my God, I can't believe it. He said, what you guys were doing was you were doing the, I'm sorry, it was 500 targets. It was 500 targets of four digit numbers. He said, you were, you were predicting the movement of the S&P 500 every day. And every single day for a week, <laughs> you accurately predicted the movement of the S&P 500 with 98% accuracy. So you were double blind because he used symbols to represent the movement exactly. and you had no idea. Like animals, okay. the stock's going to go up. Vegetables, the stock's yeah. going to go down. And, oh my uh, gosh. And, and animal, vegetable, and mineral, the stock's going to stay the same. And okay. so he was super excited. But the, but the thing was, we, we had been missionaries for years. And in our belief system at the time, the stock market was just gambling. 
you know, it's just plain old gambling. Uh, and uh, actually, George Clooney agrees with me on that one. Uh, <laughs> stock market is just plain old gambling. And so because uh, people ask George Clooney why he doesn't invest in the stock market, he said, because I can think, you know, if I'm going to go gamble, I'd rather have whiskey and, you know, cigars and do it with a bunch of friends. And he made $50 million off of Calamigos. Casamigos. <laughs> yeah. So he's doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the funny thing is, so he tells us that, and then he has us do it the following week again. And this time we were 98% inaccurate, inaccurate. Mm. So he says, you know, that's really just as far beyond chance, but not as helpful, you know? Right. <laughs> right, you know? Right. But the thing was, as soon as he told us, it flipped the switch because our subconscious minds were like, uh-uh, I'm not doing the stock yeah. market. If this has to do with the stock market, I don't want anything to do with it. What what did the numbers represent? The four digits. What were the, how is that associated? Oh, well, that's really just a way for databasing purposes, so okay. that he he so he wouldn't actually be giving us the name of the stock. Right, right. It's just a way to right. disguise the name of the stock, yeah. so to speak. That's a good segue because I think something that people might not have understood, people who have never heard about this and they're hearing this episode of our show, and this is something that I think is interesting for us, and I've talked about it is the process that you teach. For me, I think of a pilot in an airplane going through that checklist of all the things you're going to do before you take off the plane. Because just to sum up, in my basic understanding, essentially what you're trying to do is defeat the president of the company, as you call it, the conscious mind from taking over the remote viewing process. So you've come up with all these steps that keep the president preoccupied so the subconscious mind can do the actual work of the remote viewing. Right, except that defeat is is not a good word in the not sense defeat. that... Not defeat, okay. Because we're trying to create a friendly relationship and a partnership between conscious and subconscious. So what we want to do is we want to look at the conscious mind as the reporter or the interviewer and the subconscious mind as the interviewee. And so we've got to give the conscious mind its due and give it honor in that it's got a good job to do, which is the interviewing part of, of the whole thing. And we're keeping it busy and honoring it so it doesn't feel threatened and feels like it has to take over the session. However, in the beginning, it's not used to stepping aside. So the conscious mind likes to think it's in charge all the time and can feel threatened as you're beginning your journey as a remote viewer. You do go through some sibling rivalry and some some issues as they're starting to get to know each other and being okay. able to communicate. And that process, the, the steps that you go through, and this is the thing that I, th I think people should really hear about whether or not anyone can do it, but they, they really can. It's not even as complicated as learning a foreign language that's not a romance language, which I think is in, uh, easier for people that speak English. You know, my son's taking Mandarin. Good Lord, I can't even help him study for anything. He's, he goes through and he's like, am I ready for the test? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> but, I, have um, son, I have a son who's <laughs> fluent in Mandarin as well. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. It's such a different thing. But my point is that this isn't that different. It's really just about here are the tasks that you need to do to execute a good session, at least for phase one. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about phase one here. And if you follow these tasks, this seems to uh, generate the best results. It seems to teach you how to generate them repetitively. The other thing that I think is really important for people to understand is the documentation, especially since the CRV discipline comes down from a military origin. It's very specific. How can we track this data? How can we go back? Like you said, is it better if I just had a meal? Is it better what was going on here? Because I was way more accurate with these targets that I did right after I went jogging or that sort of thing. It's great. I love that you that you gather all that information. I think that's the part that uh, once you get past that point, and then you, I'm sure you move into those next phases, 
when you're describing the target, and I'll need you to tell me this because I've I've done one class in basic. That's it. <laughs> Fate, you know, the most basic thing. Yes, I sort of drew the target, which I can't talk about because it's still up there on one of your free classes. But my question is, or, or I think the thing that people understand is, at least with phase one, it's not a mind's eye. It's not like a describing what you would see in your mind's eye. Like you're not closing to me. You're not closing your eyes and, oh, I see the place and this and that and the other. Even though when you're talking about it, it seems like that's what you're doing. But it's not, isn't it more a flow of adjectives and a flow of words into your mind yeah. that's describing the target? Let's talk about that for a minute because it's very much like the holodeck on the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> you get little perceptions along as you're starting out, you're getting these pieces of information and you you kind of are building a virtual reality around yourself that you you can eventually buy into. And, and in this discussion, we kind of have to talk a little bit about the difference between out-of-body experience versus CRV. And a lot of people ask, what's the difference between OBE and CRV? Well, in OBE, a part of you is literally leaving your body. I mean, there have been documented cases of when someone dies, for example, that they literally see like a puff of steam or, or a little bit of a light that leaves the body. And they've actually had people on special beds that measure minute changes in weight. And the body actually loses weight when the spirit leaves the body. And there have been documented cases, like, for example, on a hypnotist stage where a guy's sitting in a chair and they, the hypnotist directs the guy to leave his body and go down the street and climb in a window and describe the room he's in, blah, blah, blah. He comes back and brings him back into his body. And then the next thing you know, the police are coming in saying a woman saw him in her room. I have a former student who had no belief in any of this stuff, thought it was all BS, had you know absolutely no interest in it. And one day, one night she had a dream that she was on a friend's boat and she was watching this friend do, his stuff, do some things. And the next day, the friend calls and it's like, were you on my boat last night? Because I looked up and I saw you. And she's shocked. And she says, were you doing blah, 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 blah? And he's like, yeah. And so she realized she really was on his boat, that a part of her had left her body and was on the boat. Therefore, you can be detected when you're out of mm -hmm. your body. And if this was developed to be a, an intelligence tool, and you are out of your body examining the enemy's secret military installation, and the guard dog sees you and starts barking, and the guy watching the closed circuit cameras goes, uh-oh, our security's been compromised, the dog is seeing something we can't see, then that defeats the whole purpose. So they knew that OBE was not a good intelligence tool because you could be detected. So they had to create something that was undetectable. And therefore, with CRV, the idea is that a part of your brain, which or a part of your mind or your consciousness, is kind of bouncing off what we call the signal line or the matrix, pulling information in and giving it back to the interviewer, the conscious mind, right? So it's this let me get some information for you and hand it back to you. Meanwhile, the conscious mind is very slow and lumbering compared to the subconscious, which is lightning fast. And so the conscious mind is like trying to sip from the fire hose in a way, right? So the conscious mind is drinking from the fire hose and it, it comes up with these little bits of information that you're then setting in front of you kind of like a virtual reality. You're building a copy of the target. Well, if you're visiting a, an exact replica of the target, instead of the target itself, and no part of you is really leaving your body, that makes you undetectable. It's like you have Harry Potter's cloak of invisibility. 
and you can go anywhere and describe anything in all of time and space, which then indicates something that governments find very frightening. And that is, there are no secrets. Two things about that. One is you answered one of the questions I didn't even get to ask yet, but had written down, which was, can you be detected? So the other observation I want to make is that the Russian intelligence that came, according to Third Eye Spies, was uh, from a defector or an agent or somebody who came over and had very hard, solid evidence that the Russians were already doing this. And that's what motivated it to get going here. It wasn't just a rumor. It wasn't just, I heard this through a wall when I was in Moscow. No, no, it was. And my understanding is that agent yeah. that defected and had those documents was later killed. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's okay. Sad. So that's, that's how they were already doing this. It was government sanctioned. They were spending all this money. So then it's like, okay, we've got to get into this. This my other question was, uh, do you ever bump into anybody? Let's say it this way. I've never bumped into another remote viewer or another human that was remote viewing. Um, I have bumped into beings that I never, you know, I never believed in anything other than humans and animals and things we can see and touch in this dimension. So it was a big shock to me when I had encounters with beings that were not of this dimension that gave me information that was so far above my educational level that my husband, the scientist, could understand, but he knew that I didn't know this stuff. And then some of the stuff even went above his level and has since been verified through recent discoveries in quantum physics. You know, if you ever get where you're, this is ho-hum and not interesting and not blowing your mind anymore, it's time to quit. But I've never gotten to that point yet and spent 25 years, uh, 26 years. And so, for example, I was remote viewing the cause of an airplane crash. All I was told was the target's an event. The airplane crash took place in the 1950s, and my job was to describe the, the cause of it. Well, the cause actually, when I, I was describing how this is a calm thing, these two men are controlling this man-made thing that's got these sections in the glass, and then everything's fine, and the weather's good, and then suddenly there's a, a noise, and the plane is tipping over this a man-made object is tipping and there's stuff falling. There's a lot of noise. There's some smoke and something is failing. So my monitor says, move to the failing and describe. So I moved to, suddenly I'm literally describing the interior part of an engine and I'm sketching it. Do I know the first thing about engines? Nothing, zero. And I'm sketching this whole thing. And when I'm done, we take a break or we end of the session. I don't remember, but we're, we had a, like an appointment to go to. So we're, we're heading out the door. And I, I said to my husband who had been monitoring me, I was like, gosh, I'm sorry. I bet that really bored you to death. And he looks at me and he goes, that's the best session you've ever done. And then he, he proceeds to tell me that his dad was an airplane mechanic in the 50s and that he knows exactly what part of the engine I was sketching because I sketched the interior part of this engine so accurately. And I have no idea what the interior of an engine looks like. So how could I even sketch that? You know what I mean? It's like it blows my mind because it shows me that, you know, it doesn't even depend on what you know or what you don't know. You don't have to describe something you know anything about. That's twice now that you have answered the very next question <laughs> I had before I asked it. I just want to tell you that. That's twice that you've done that. So <laughs> pretty good. Well, that's like yeah. that's like Hela Hamid. They thought she had memorized the globe or a globe, uh, you know, mo <laughs> globe model. So uh, because how could you be doing this? It makes me think of where back to the question of where does inf this information come from and how is it translatable? How can GPS coordinates, you know, three, four dot, whatever, and another string of eight numbers, how can that translate into 
an actual place when that that's really our numerical calculation of a location on on this sphere we live on. Uh, but it reminds me of uh, I, I bring him up a lot because I'm just fascinated by him is uh, the uh, autistic savant Daniel Tammet, who for five hours rattled off the numbers of pi just out of his head, didn't miss a single digit. That's impossible. Yet he did it. And what fascinates me is that, well, obviously then he's seeing these numbers in his head. And I think this probably gets back to Scott talking about uh, some of the sessions we experienced and what we see and how it works. They asked him, well, do you see the, you must see the numbers, right? And then, so the number pops up into your mind's eye and you just say it. And he goes, no, I start to get this, uh, a tumble of images in that it might be, I see a waterfall and that kind of morphs into a clump of trees. And then that morphs into the beach and that morphs into a rock. And he's getting these kind of natural images. And yet what comes out of his mouth is pi for uh, pi for five hours. Now, how, how does that translate? Because obviously he's not just saying numbers that pop up into his head. It's not, he's not psychically reading them off of a monitor somewhere, which mm -hmm. would be amazing in itself. The amazing thing is the information is coming to him and somehow it's transmuting through his, his brain and, and comes out of his mouth, and it's absolutely correct. To me, that's an impossibility. That should not be able to happen, and yet it did. That's why we don't understand reality, because remember in Rain Man, when Dustin Hoffman, like the, the toothpicks fall on the floor, and he immediately right. says how many toothpicks are on the ground. And uh, years ago, you know, homeschooling my kids and working with my babies when they were babies, we learned a thing called math dots, where instead mm -hmm. of teaching children to memorize, you know, one, two, three, four, five, or one plus two is three or whatever, you show them dots and you say, you know, three and you hold in the paper, it's a white page that has three dots on it. And they learn if I, to recognize quantities and they become much better at math. And so we were doing this with our kids and my daughter was like, I don't know, maybe three or four years old. We walk into a restaurant. We walk through the rain across the parking lot. We get in the restaurant. She says, 1,053. And I'm like, 1,053 what? She goes, raindrops hit me as I was coming in. You know what I mean? It's like, I was just like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> like what, what was that about? You know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I, it was like two minutes across the parking lot. And I was just like, hmm. And, you know, you see the savants who hear a piece of music and instantly can sit down and duplicate it on a piano when they don't even have, and never had a piano lesson. Yeah, I mean, how, we definitely can manipulate reality based on our belief systems. And it can work both ways. Like Lynn Buchanan can't win in the casino because a part right. of him believes he cannot or that he should not. Uh, in the same token, children who think, why shouldn't I be able to make that thing spin, you know, or whatever, yeah. can do it easily with no problem. Hi, this is Adam. And I'm Tori. From Soft Spoken Podcast. And when we're not berating our third co-host, Eric. Hello. Over his arbitrary and ever-changing rating scales for sauces, we're listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. Leading back to the beginning of the conversation about getting to really know yourself, in the book you describe how remote viewing can be beneficial to one's personal life immediately in your day-to-day -day life. And you tell a story about overcoming a fear of heights. Would you relay that to the audience? Sure. That's like, it's a little bit of immersion therapy, I guess, or uh, uh, exposure therapy, but it definitely worked for you. Oh, it did. And as Russell said, this is a journey of self-discovery. I did not realize I had a fear of heights. And so 
Lynn was working on a target with me. I, he was monitoring me. I was doing the target. And uh, it was these guys in the Amazon jungle where trees are really close together and they grow up to be hundreds of feet high. And they had put in the scaffolding in four points in a square and then had stretched a tarp across the top of the scaffolding and they would climb up the scaffolding and then they would get on this tarp and they were collecting exotic bugs to examine for medicinal purposes. And so every time Lynn would try to get me to move up, I just couldn't, I couldn't move up. I could describe everything at ground level, but I couldn't move up. And he was like, do you have a fear of heights? And I suddenly had this flood of images of different times in my life when I'd been up high and I was just frozen with fear, like panic stricken, including a time when I was at, on the, the, the top floor of one of the twin towers in New York. And I was convinced that they were collapsing and I had a, I had to get out of the building. I, I started to freak out and I don't Now I wonder, was I having a precognitive moment that I wasn't aware of, but I remember just being terrified at being up at that height and feeling like the buildings were collapsing and I was falling. And in reality, nothing was happening. So these kinds of things, you know, I have a student who became aware that she was claustrophobic when she was having the different episodes while she was viewing. And another student who had experienced a traumatic event where she saw uh, her husband drown in a boating accident. And because of that developed a really terrible fear of water. And so CRV is, it helped me get over my fear of heights to the point where I have since been bungee jumping. I've been parasailing. <laughs> I've been a, a, done a number of really high things, you know, that I would have never done. I rode every roller coaster right after 9-11 Bush Gardens in Florida opened the doors to military and their family. My son was in the Coast Guard. So we got to go and there was no one there. So there was no line. There were no lines to wait in. I rode every roller coaster on the place repeatedly that day. And never, I was the only one who didn't get sick, who didn't have any adverse effects from it. So CRV definitely cured that fear of heights. The woman who has the fear of water is now remote viewing water without a problem. And it, and it translates into your regular life. So it is definitely a wonderful self-discovery tool. But not only do you discover that sort of thing, but you can also discover your hidden stereotypes and your hidden prejudices <laughs> that will come up. You know, And so it's really interesting to find the things like you might discover that you tend to label people a judgmental thing and your labels may be very incorrect because you start realizing how wrong your labels can be when you jump to conclusions, which leads me to something that Scott said, where he was talking about um, how do things relate to scrying or, uh, you know, like reading crystal balls or palm reading or different types of paranormal functionings, Madame Minerva and whatever. And it's interesting because I came into this from a pretty religious background. And so I was like the guy who's crawling across the ice because he's afraid it's going to break. And then suddenly he looks up and there's another guy with a, pig, a load of pig iron crossing confidently with his horses, you know, in his wagon. And he realizes I don't need to be crawling on the ice. I was very fearful and CRV provided me with a, a safe platform. It was based in science and brain science. And it was based on the premise that we all have these abilities. They're God-given abilities. They're part of being human. So it took away some of my fear of, well, will I be displeasing God? Will I be in league with the devil? But I had always had a natural ability that I fought and you know denied because I was afraid I would be displeasing God. And it would be like just it'd be like being afraid of, of using your eyesight or being afraid of using your hearing. God gave you those abilities. Use them. What happened to me though was that I over time as I gained confidence and I started really exploring this, 
I decided that I was going to actually stretch out and get up on my feet, walk across the ice instead of crawling on it. And I started giving in to the idea of that I was a natural medium and that I would go ahead and help people uh, get information about those they loved who had died and give them some solutions and some answers. And the amazing things that started happening when I was doing that just were phenomenal. I mean, the details, the names, dates, and intricate details that I couldn't possibly know that caused me to even say, what the heck is this? You know, how does this even work? I remember one night a guy had come in, my husband, who is the forensic scientist, is also a Reiki master. And we had a free Reiki night once a week. And this beautiful black man came in whose smile would just light up the room. He seemed like the happiest, most cheerful guy I'd ever seen in my life. He lays down on the table and this other man who was a Reiki practitioner with us, who's Navajo, we put our hands on this man to start working on him. And instantly I was like, oh my gosh you have a mommy hurt, like your mother passed away when you were in your 20s? He's like, yes. I just start telling him all this stuff about his mother, his father, detail, tons of details. And and he it ended up going on for like an hour. And and I said I kept saying to the guy, are you okay with me doing this? He was like, yes, please, please tell me more. And he didn't feed me any information. All he would say is yes. And that, and then finally that night when I went home, I stayed in the bathroom, kind of pacing in the bathroom for like hours. And at three o'clock in the morning, I went into the bedroom to go to sleep. And Jim's voice comes out of the darkness. And he says, are you through fighting with yourself? He says, you're the only one who's questioning what's going on here. Everybody else knows what's happening. And I was just kind of blown away by that. But what I realized then, I started comparing it to when I do CRV. Like, what's the difference? And I found that there, I feel it's my belief that I use a different part of my brain, that if I were hooked up with electrodes or done, gone through an MRI in both circumstances, I think different parts of my brain would light up because it feels different. I don't know how to say it in any other way. It just feels different. And I would be doing, for example, let's say I'm, I was doing this one mediumship thing and I suddenly just saw these ceramic plates that had ceramic embossed grapes in the center of them purple grapes. And so I said to the woman in front of me, do, do ceramic plates with purple, you know, with purple grapes on them mean anything? She goes, yeah, those are my grandmother's plates. I inherited them when she died. And I thought now in CRV, that would never work. You might, the plates might be symbolic of something, or they might be telling you to extrapolate the colors, white, purple, green, but usually verbatim, the plates are not part of the session. You know, just not, that's just not the way it works. And so I just realized how it is very, it's a very different thing. I had one lady sitting in front of me who was, uh, she'd come to see me. She was dressed in this beautiful suit. I described this man. Yes, that's the man I'm interested in talking about. I described what he was wearing, that he owned a body shop, what his uniform looked like and from the body shop, all this stuff. Yes, yes. But she was totally unimpressed. She wasn't at all excited by what I was saying, even though I was getting everything right. And finally, I could tell I hadn't answered her question. So I said, I'm sorry, that's all I'm getting. I'm, you know, you don't have to pay me if you don't want. She stood up. And as I stood up to say goodbye to her, I had literally a vision. And in my vision, I saw this man from the body shop, the auto body shop, laid on his back with his chest blown open. And I saw the room and the, the men who did it and everything all in one vision. And I went, oh my God, he's been shot and his chest is blown open. And she sat back down and said, that's why I'm here. And then I proceeded to tell her everything about the whole thing. 
and also that he was very sorry he had never married her and hadn't included her in his will because he didn't expect to die. You know, he just didn't expect this to happen. But he also told her he didn't want her to try to find these people or get involved in any way because they were very dangerous, etc. It was such a mind-blowing thing, but it sometimes that's how it would happen. It would be like I'm literally watching a movie. And yeah. I was just describing what was happening. And that happened time after time after time. I had one kid who came to see me. The funny thing is he made an appointment and then he canceled the appointment. And I tried to call him back like two minutes after he left me the message, canceled the appointment and said, if you're canceling the appointment because you're afraid that this is of the devil and you're just pleasing God, I just want to say that I was a former missionary and I really, you know, I've been led by God to do this. And so he called me back and said, can I make my appointment again? I want, that was why I was canceling. And so he walks up to me, hands me a, a photograph of this man. And I said, is this your father? And he said, yes. And I said, did he kill himself? And he said, yes. I said, did he hang himself? And he said, yes. And I said, okay. And then we sat down and I literally saw everything that happened. He was fighting with his, you know, I, I described this woman. I said, he was having an argument with her. She, he's married to her, but she's not your mother. He said, yeah, he married her four months ago. And then I described the whole reason they had the fight. And then I watched him walk out the back door of the kitchen and go into the shed and hang himself. And the kid was like, how are you describing this? How are you seeing this? Is it, I mean, how is this even happening? You know, he couldn't believe that I was describing it so accurately. And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that it, you know, when I open myself up that way, that's what happens. But that's a different database. That's it's a, a different, different database. It's a different, right? Yeah. I think it's a different part of the brain as well. Maybe the source is the same though. The source of the information may be the same. There's a difference there because it seems like with CRV, you're accessing this data, this information that's not necessarily connected to a soul or something that was living. Whereas when you're a medium or you're getting it, which not necessarily in that case, you're describing a series of events, but are there other cases where you're interactively, or you're having an interactive relationship with the person who has passed? Have you had those kinds of sessions too? You know, Eileen Garrett is probably the most famous medium that ever lived. And mm -hmm. um, she wrote a series of books, a lot of books, but in one of her books where she submitted to research from a university and um, she was so accurate, but she herself said, I'm never really sure that I'm communicating with the dead or if this is some other phenomena that's taking place. And that's kind of how I feel. I mean, I did have uh, one woman who called me and I instantly started talking about her grandfather who had been married to the love of his life, who was her grandmother, and then left her for another woman and then regretted it till the day he died. And so I just told her all this stuff. And she was said, that's the whole reason I called you because everyone in the family is having dreams about him where he's trying to get through to us, but we can't hear what he's saying. At that point, I felt like, gosh, it really does seem like this guy was trying to talk to me and telling me something. And I had another instance where I had been um, working with a man who I never met. To this day, I've never met him, but we were working helping refugees get employment in the trucking company he worked for. And this guy had been a part of MI6 in England. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And yeah. Ha there had been an incident where his company was ambushed and it turned out one of the guys in the company was a traitor and everyone was killed, but he was the only guy that survived it. And his best friend was killed. And he always felt guilty because he was the, the commander at the time at the unit. And so he lived with horrible guilt. And one night I was lying in bed and I said to his father, just sort of in the middle of the night, just talking to the air, how come you don't help him? You know, he needs your help. And he said, why do you think I had to meet you? 
And then I, th- I thought, okay, I'm making this up. You know, I just have a great imagination. And the next day I tell him that, you know, hey, I docked your dad last night. And I told him what happened. He said, oh, man, what did he look like? And I said, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't, you know, I don't really know. You know, I, didn't talk, I don't talk to dead people. He says, well, would you please try to see him? Because it would really help me if in my belief system, if, if you could describe my dad to me. Now, I happen to know that this particular man that I was on the phone with is 6'4", salt and pepper curly hair, abundant salt and pepper curly hair. And I knew what this guy looked like facially because we had exchanged photos. Well, that night I drive in, I'm driving in the garage and I suddenly in my mind's eye see this man who's like 5'7", chubby, balding, bad comb over, you know, bald hair, straight hair, and huge nose and huge earlobes. And I'm thinking this man cannot be genetically connected to this guy who's six four. Right. I'm thinking no right. way he could be his father. And so that the next day I tell him, and he he starts crying. He says that's my dad, and he's crying. And I was just like, wow. So you know, sometimes I would think, yes, I definitely connected with someone who's passed over. And other times I think, could it be some other phenomena that I just don't know yet that I'm not familiar with? I don't know. I don't want to get into it a lot. We did a show on it. We probably bring it up too much on our show already, but they, we, we covered a book called The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts. And in that book, the author interacted with through a medium with someone who he thought was a love from a former life and all of that. And there was all kinds of hyper accurate information, but then there would be a small percentage of the information, 10 or 15% that was completely off base and provably demonstrably false. And then the further he went, the more it seemed like he wasn't interacting with anything that was good for him, but it was definitely something that was accessing accurate information and trying to have an ongoing relationship with him through the medium for some reason. But it wasn't necessarily connected with anyone deceased or prior life. And it's just kind of a scary book. Actually, after he published it, he wound up committing suicide. So since we covered that, I wonder a little bit more now about when you are supposedly talking to a deceased loved one or interacting with them, it's like, is it really, are, who's on the, as Forrest said earlier in tonight's show, uh, the hitchhiker, do you, how do you know who you're talking to when you, when you get in the car, I guess? Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And so I don't know, you know, and I don't do mediumship anymore, not because of any reason like, oh, I don't want to do it. I really actually enjoyed it immensely and, and had so many people tell me how much it had helped them. But at the same time, because I don't have time. I mean, now that I have that, it's like I had to drop everything else I was doing in order to focus 100% on teaching CRV because now I have a very strong mission of helping people really explore their own potential as in their own consciousness and raise the level of consciousness on the planet. And I had to decide, well, am I going to spread myself so thin among all these things or am I going to do one thing well? And so that's why I don't do that anymore. Why do you do this? It's great. I know that you're making a living and all of that, but but there's more to it than that with you, which is obvious. Why are you so hell-bent on teaching everyone how to control remote view? <laughs> I love that, hell-bent. I love that. <laughs> That's great. And, and nobody's asked me specifically, why are you hell-bent on that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad I can be the You have such a way first. with words, Scott. Um, well, you know. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it is interesting. I do want to say that sometimes I question my sanity only because this is a hell of a lot of work. 
oh my gosh, I literally work a lot of times 14 to 18 hour days. And I it's know. not because I have to. A lot of times it's because like last night I, I was working till 10 o'clock, which this year, one of my one of my intentions this year was not to do that because I'm going to take care of myself first and be healthy mm-hmm. and all this. But I was just so engrossed in everything I was doing and it was so much fun. I didn't want to stop. I was, you know, just ticking things off my to-do list. The thing about it is my husband has a decent retirement you know, between what he makes from his retirement from working for the state of Texas for many years and what he gets from social security, our place is paid for. We could live very comfortably on what he makes and I don't need to Mm -hmm. do this for income. And now very shortly, I'm going to be able to collect social security myself. (laughs) And so why am I doing this? And um, it's just that I have such a passion when people, I get letters from people, even people who just have done the free class and nothing else, who write and say, this has totally changed my life. One lady wrote me and she said, I'm finding me in all this. I'm finding me. Other people say, it's totally changed my life. I never knew there was anything beyond whatever. It gives them hope. It helps them gain confidence. You know, you can take the girl off the mission field, but maybe you can't take the missionary out of the girl. I don't know. But I just have this desire to help people and lift them up in their lives. And that's why I do it. And of course, yes, I get some flack. You know, I get some letters that say, oh, you should never charge from this. It's a gift from God, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, I now am employing, you know, like nine people, 10 people now. Actually, yesterday it became 10 people. So I now have 10 people that I'm employing and I have to find a way to pay them. They deserve to get paid for what they're doing. Uh, the laborer is worthy of his hire, the Bible says. Muzzle not right. the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. You know, I mean, it's scriptural. <laughs> people deserve to get paid. And so when I get people that write me and say, you shouldn't charge for this, it's a gift from God. I say that's BS because, of course, God believes in remuneration for, you know, it's only worthy. Also, I found that when you give stuff away for free, it never bears good fruit. And wherefore, by yeah. their fruit, you shall know them. You, you give something away for free, it has no value. And people yeah. value something. I mean, you don't expect to go and see your doctor and not pay him for all his years of work and learning how to become a doctor and how to heal you. And of course, why should you expect someone who spent 10 years of their lives and thousands of dollars learning how to do something that only a very tiny, minuscule percent of the population on the whole planet know how to do? Why would you expect them to do that for free? That doesn't make sense to me. So yes, I don't, I'm don't. i not doing it for the money, but I do have people that depend on me who do need the money. And so yes, I, I am doing it because I'm impassioned to help people find their own potential and what they are able to do and help people realize that life is so much more than those things you can touch with your hands. But do you think there's a connection between uh, getting good at this and thinking more about, I guess, immortality? <laughs> I don't know if there's a connection in that, but I think that it definitely does help. Help It helps you realize that we are so much more than our bodies. You know, sometimes you can really get down to the you know nose to the grindstone, going to work every day and earning a paycheck and fighting traffic and raising your kids that you just kind of lose sight that there's a lot more to life than this. And that, and when you do realize that it suddenly makes life so much more exciting. I mean, I was raising seven kids, supporting a huge house full of people and had a a really crazy job that was, you know, just 
grinding job. And I had a pretty terrible marriage at the time too. So life was really not a happy thing for me. But then when I when I would read a book, for example, that just lifted me up and made me think, hey, there's a lot more to this. And, and this is just like a little tiny moment in the spectrum of time in which I'm in the school of life learning whatever lessons I'm learning. It just helped me so much to realize, hey, this is just a temporary thing. It's not forever. And I would just feel so much better. And also to think that there was more to life than just the things I was seeing every day and experiencing. And I sometimes at night, I would have these amazing precognitive or supernatural dreams that would just make me go, okay, I'm having a hard time today, but, but the boy last night was amazing. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it seems other people see it in different ways. I have a very good friend who, with them, they can touch something and they'll get an impression in their mind's eye. A former girlfriend had uh, synesthesia. She would hear music and colors would appear uh, in her mind's eye. I have other friends that they get information in different ways. For me, what I can say is, talking about the two targets, and if we want to go into that in a little more detail, is that I didn't really see anything. They were more ideas in my head if that makes any sense. I don't really, if I get any kind of connection to the target, it's more like it's a thought. I don't see an image. I would guess that while I'm doing the the procedure of uh, remote viewing, that I am then forced to take those ideas and, okay, what is that? Is that something brown? Is it dirt? Is it dirty, dusty? I have an idea of wind. Is it windy there? And take those kind of surroundings, but I'm not actually seeing it uh, because I have a, uh, with those targets, I got a lot of the stuff around it, but I didn't actually get the object that was the focus of the photo. Uh, so I guess I could ask both of you, like, how, so for you, Lori, is it, is it visual? Do you get pictures in your mind's eye? When I'm doing CRV, I found that oftentimes if you have a really clear photo in your mind, like a clear, a picture that's like a photograph that's crystal right. clear. That is often coming from the imagination, but there's always truth in it in some way. There's always a kernel of truth in the sense that maybe the colors that you're seeing are accurate, or maybe like, you know, if I say, okay, describe what I have in this envelope and you say it's red, smooth, and shiny. I think it's an apple and it turns out to be a fire engine. There's always something you can extrapolate from those images, but they are usually not verbatim accurate. And even if they are, it doesn't matter because our job is to describe, not to identify. Whereas uh, in a lot of schools of psychic training, the whole goal is to name it, right? And and, and yep. then, woohoo, I named it. I won the <laughs> thing. But the, the thing we found when doing CRV projects um, is that there, and then the guy, the archaeologist who said, yes, I've worked with remote viewers, when he got our report, uh, which was a written thing, you know, a written report, when he got it, he called me and his voice was shaking. He said, I've never worked with remote viewers. I've only worked mm. with psychics. He then had a very clear understanding of the mm-hmm. difference. And I'm not in any way dissing psychics. I've done psychic right. work myself. And, and I'm just saying, though, there is a difference. And one of the differences is that we go much more in depth in a CRV session. I've had students that work finishing a base and an advanced class with me have worked on a target for several days and they're now finally writing a summary. They still don't know what they were viewing. And then when they're done, they've, they've got close to 200 or maybe over 200 perceptions and they end up being anywhere from 85 to 95 to 98% accurate mm. in describing wow. a, a very detailed target that might be an event, you know, and describing the whole event backwards and forward through time and all the things that happen. And of course, they're never allowed to name it, but they can describe it and even build 3D models of it with clay and things like that. So mm-hmm. I have a quiz coming out in a few weeks 
that oh, yes. um, that helps people. It's a quiz. It's a free thing, and it just it's called "What Is Your Intuitive Intelligence Profile." It's really funny because we we actually tested a bunch of different que- names for this quiz, and that one was the one we thought was least likely, and mm-hmm. it ended up being the one that everybody wanted to click on. But uh, so, what is your intuitive intelligence profile? And, it, and essentially, you take this quiz, and then it gives you a report, a beautiful report, very very thorough at the end. And essentially, we're separating people who are clairvoyant, clairaudient, clairsentient, and claircognizant, which mm-hmm. we call the seer, the knower, the feeler, and the hearer, or something you know. Along those lines uh it's just really to help you pick out your own strengths like are you are you tend to be more visual or more auditory i have found actually surprising to me because i always thought i was probably more visual that i'm actually strongest in auditory sense and so um you know it's really funny this is a crazy story but years ago um there was a viewer and a monitor in the military unit the viewer knew nothing about the Spanish language and his target was these, it was a race in which there were boats that were shallow, long boats that would go through shallow water, but the water was full of boulders. And there would be a guy in the front of the boat telling the guy in the back who's steering the boat with a stick and saying, go to the left, go to the right. And so that's the target, but it's all taking place in Spanish. The viewer has no knowledge of the Spanish language. And he says, I'm hearing sounds. I'm hearing human voices. They're saying something like, Recha, Recha, Scareda, Scareda, which in Spanish is like, a la derecha, a la izquierda. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, he's actually hearing them. Not only is he hearing them, so not only is he picking up sounds from the target, which you can't do from a photograph in an envelope, but this thing took place, what, 50 years ago. So he's time traveling mm. also. <laughs> so, yeah. so, I, so one time I, I, I stopped by Lynn's house to say hello. He was having an advanced class. He says, please sit down for just a second. Let's, we're, I'm doing something with the class. I want you to participate. I said, okay. He passes out a map. Everybody gets a, a blank map of, of the New York City area. And, and only the only names on it are in Russian because he doesn't want anybody to know what it is. So and he says, okay, mark the spot on the map where you hear a baby cry. And I guess because I had seven babies that I gave birth to, I'm very sensitive to babies crying. So I, without even thinking, I just put an X on the map. I didn't even think about it. I just instantly put an X on the map. Then he passes out the feedback, which is of the same map but with an X on it. And then you're supposed to put your map over that you marked over the one that has the actual correct location and see how far off you were. I was exactly on the spot. Exactly. And so um, what that showed me was that, and the, and the target was a Greek Orthodox church that was at that location. And the photo was this Greek Orthodox minister with this little tiny baby dipping, baptizing this baby <laughs> and the baby screaming bloody murder. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm very auditory directed because I can think of now of a lot of targets I've worked where I actually heard the sounds that were happening at the target. I guess I am more auditory than anything. However, I do pick up everything in, in every, I think my weakest areas are probably um, in the sense of taste and smell in that when I'm doing remote viewing, you know, the sense of taste and smell are, mm-hmm. are, my, mm-hmm. are very. Remote. But still, are you hearing the sounds? Are you hearing those sounds <laughs> or you are describing a sound that is in your mind? I think that it's that's a better description, Scott, that you just gave, because I tell my students, you might pick up the smell of lemons, 
but you, you might not actually be like, I smell lemons, but you might be remembering the smell of lemons. It's like a right. memory sense because, right. Right. you know, everybody's right. done the experiment where you imagine you're licking a lemon and you actually start salivating. It's more like that. It's more like a memory sense that comes to you. But I found that different viewers, they all experience the target in their own unique way. Mm, and right. generally speaking, I mean, there are some viewers who are really strong. Everybody has strengths and weaknesses. And that's why keeping a database is really important right. in one way. And that's another reason, for example, that I charge because I, I spent a lot of money creating a database just for my students so that they could learn what they're good at and what they're not good at. And then we can strengthen the weak areas. For example, you might have somebody who's like 98% accurate in colors and they're really good. They've been really good with colors for over a hundred sessions. And now you want them to view the planet Xerxes on the, you know, in the galaxy of whatever, Nebulon, and they say the planet's purple. Well, they have a track record. They're 98% accurate in colors over a hundred provable sessions. Now they're looking at a non-provable target and they say it's going to be purple. You can go, well, you know, they do have a 98% track record over 100 targets. I'm going to put some credence in what this person says. And this comes into play. Do you remember the Washington sniper case years ago mm -hmm. when there was that blue? Oh, yeah. It was a blue sedan with a hole in the, in the yes. trunk, and they were putting the rifle through the hole and shooting people randomly. There were a bunch of remote viewers that worked on that, and only one of them was Lynn Student. And mm. this was before I was teaching, but only one of them was Lynn Student. And uh, out of all the viewers, the viewers all, nobody knew what they were viewing. They were blind to the target, but uh, several of them mentioned like a red vehicle. And this one viewer that was Lynn student said it was blue. And he was the only one of all the viewers that said it was blue and it was blue. But the thing about it was Lynn's school was the only one that had a database. And this particular guy had a really high rating in colors. So uh, if the other people didn't have any kind of a rating and whether their colors were right, then who uh, are you going to put your... Where are you going to put the weight of your belief? You're going to put it with the guy who has a track record. Right. So that's why I, when I, I see people who hang out a shingle and say, hey, I'm teaching controlled remote viewing. And what they're really teaching is, for example, a guided meditation or guided <laughs> visualization. And they basically are like, close your eyes and go to the planet, you know, Xerxes in the galaxy of Nebulon and talk with the greys there. And those people will be like, oh, my gosh, I had the most amazing session when I did that. And they might have had a really mind-blowing experience, but there's no way to validate it and say whether there's any truth to it because they don't have a track record. Right. It could be just lost in self-delusion. So I really like to make sure that my students really build a strong foundation based on provable targets. That way they can literally score them and database them and find out what they're good at and what they're not good at. And then we can work with them on building up the areas in which they're not good. Sometimes find out why those areas are not good. Maybe it's because you have a fear of water or heights or small spaces or whatever. And then we can help them. This is Joe Harmon. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So one of the questions that we hear from people, especially uh, Lynn Buchanan in his webinar and, and possibly yourself, is that you get a lot of excitement from people because we're talking now about how impressions come to you and, and why that's important and it's different for everybody. But a lot of people get very excited about remote viewing because they want to solve crimes. They want to find missing children. They want to find the murderer. They're big true crime fans. They want to help out. They may have good intentions or they just might be have a ghoulish bent, but they they want to get into it because they want to dive into that and they, they really want to help the police. And of course, 
what the trainers will say is like, well, that's not for everybody because there's a lot of things you cannot unsee. That's so, so true. And one thing Mel used to say, I had, I had worked a session that I'd been assigned and it was about like, what is the worst thing that's going to happen next year type of target. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be extremely distressing when I worked on it. And, um, and it, it actually stuck with me for a long time. And what it taught me was that I'm probably not cut out for that type of target. Mm. But I remember discussing it with Mel. And Mel said, one of the problems is that people, when they learn to do this, they sometimes they want to play God. Like, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to determine like the next terrorist attack. And then I'm going to prevent it. But I don't think anyone could have prevented 9-11, for example. Mm -hmm. My whole life, I had dreams of it. I dreamt about the planes crashing into the Twin Towers. Some my earliest memories, nightmares about these big planes crashing into these towers. And then I was leaving, I was leaving New York September 10th at 9.30 at night. And then when we arrived in Dallas, we got stuck in Dallas. And then the, the next morning we were trying to mm. leave Dallas and that's when the planes hit. And uh, I never have ever had that dream again. You know, I would have this recurring dream up until that happened and I never had it again. So, so many people foresaw that, but no one prevented it, right? right. It, I don't think it can be prevented. So we can't play God and try to say, I'm going to view this and then I'm going to keep it from happening because we are not God. And there are certain things that are intended to happen for whatever reason uh, in this school of, of reality that we're all attending. And so... I think that trying to do that, you might come from a really honorable place if I want to save lives, but it can also come from an ego place. And I think sometimes right. we're not very good at, at discerning the difference right. in ourselves. You know, is this coming from my own egoic desire to be special and save people? Or is yeah. it coming from a true heart-based place of wanting to save lives? And sometimes it's a very fine line between the two. That could be a problem right there. Also, I've, I've, for about two years, year, many years ago, I worked on missing person cases, like a steady diet of remote viewing missing persons. And the missing people aren't always victims. Sometimes they're criminals. We were talking about how does the information come to you? Does it come to you visually or auditorially and things? In the beginning, you're getting these snippets that are like the aperture of a camera that's opening and closing very rapidly. And it might be a visual snippet or an auditory snippet or whatever, sensory information. But then as you go deeper and deeper into the target, the information broadens and broadens and you get start getting big concepts, you know, that are kind of intangible things like this is a politically motivated event that happened and da, 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 you know, whatever. And then you can move to different people at the targets and find out what their motives are and, and why, you know, what their involvement were and how some of these people are participants, some are spectators, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And you start getting broader and broader, more and more information, greater and greater amounts of detail. And that's as you become more advanced as a remote viewer. And so then it's not even just a question of how is the information coming to you auditorily or visually? No, then it becomes a thing where you're so immersed in the target that it's almost like you're experiencing it in a way. Of, that's why I say it's a different part of your brain because it's not verbal. The verbal part of it is, is really the left brain, right? So it's not even verbal. It's like, and you'll get a, a huge amount of information in one photon one in a one second photon that's so much that you can hardly write it down fast enough. Uh, it's really hard to speak to someone who's never done this and try to explain what it's like for an advanced, like world-class level remote viewer to be getting immense, amazingly detailed information about something. 
Right. And of course, a lot of people, you know, this this happens to law enforcement and the personnel themselves that no one can really prepare themselves for something that is that shocking. I can't even forget this website in the 90s I went to called Rotten.com. No, There's geez. pictures I saw in there that will not come out of my mind. So <laughs> that's just a website. Yeah, so. you can't unsee certain things. And and, and yeah. when you're in, in remote viewing, in a really good remote viewing state, so you're not just seeing it, you're experiencing it on a deep level. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, I, yeah. I'll give you an example. When I was doing that kidnapping case and I was really linking with the guard, I literally was like, almost like I was the guard. Mm -hmm. And so Jim is monitoring me and we are doing this in real time. It's one of the rare times when you're not time traveling because you're not viewing a picture, you know, not viewing a site that uh, from a picture that was taken 50 years ago or an event that happened 50 years ago, you're, you're literally viewing in real time. And so it was nighttime and it was a full moon. And so we knew that we were in the same time zone as the area where the kidnap victim disappeared. And so even though it was a foreign country, it was the same time zone. So I'm standing outside. I'm the, I'm the guard and I'm standing outside and I'm noticing it's pitch dark out there, but I notice in the distance, there's a hill with little lights on it. And so Jim says, can he tell us where they are? And I said, well, it's the country, it's out in the country. It's very dark, but, but over here, and I'm literally pointing ahead of me and a little off to my right. I'm like, over there is a hill with some lights on it. And so I literally asked, what's the name of that village? And I got this answer. And I said the answer of the name. And then Jim says, where is the full moon in relation to you? And I immediately pointed up. And so Jim's kind of knowing what direction I'm pointing to in the village because of where I say the moon is. So then the next day, we, uh, we, we went on Google Earth. We tried to find this village. We couldn't find it. And the next day, Jim comes home from work, comes in the door saying, I found it. I found it. I'm like, what did you find? He said, I found the village. And I'm like, how? How did you find it? He said, I went to a specialty map shop and I bought this really detailed map. And he said, and I found it. Now we've got the GPS coordinates. We can look it up. So we looked it up online and there was the entire layout of my sketch and how, where the buildings and how they were sitting in relation to each other, the water tower. There were these weird diagonal lines behind one of the buildings. It was so funny. And I said, Jim, what made you go to this map, map shop? He said, if you said it, I knew it had to be there. He has more faith in me <laughs> than I've ever had in myself. He's just actually quite amazing. But he said, if you said it was there, I knew it had to be there. So I went to this map yeah. shop. He, he makes a really outstanding breakfast, too. I would say. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. He'll be happy to hear that because that breakfast is his thing. He loves making breakfast. <laughs> yes, yes. I do. Yes. And for those people that don't know, I, I have actually visited Lori and Jim in there. That's right. Abode, and you're, so, you're yeah. big you spent the night ship. in an earth ship. And, That's and, right, yeah. I did. <laughs> that was so cool. If you're, if we fun. hadn't scared your son to death, you might have spent two or three nights there. <laughs> that was hilarious. Uh, my son at the time, let's see, he, he was, was ten. He's going on thirteen now. He was ten then. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so as we were having dinner with Lori and Jim, right before they were sending us off to this uh, to this structure adjacent to their home to sleep. Uh, they told this fabulously colorful story about a wild ex-convict running through the woods, breaking into houses, and attacking people and stealing things. My son, who was already feeling a little sketchy about Earthships in general. So we got back in there, went back, and we go into this house with this, the Earthship, which was, as you said, partially finished. Got into this bed. It was kind of dark and just laid there and stared at the ceiling. And then uh, he was like, he was just like, he was like, Dad? And I was like, yeah. He's like... I might want to go on to our um, 
let's go ahead and go on to Albuquerque tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Poor kid. He's oh. so, so scared. And, and thankfully, that convict was apprehended and is no longer a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I was sitting there thinking, this is not a good story to tell right now. <laughs> I was like, but, but it's so funny. I told him this. Yeah. I said, we're talking to you. I told him this yesterday. He was sitting right in this room I'm in now on the bed yesterday. And I was like, uh, yeah, he was like, who are you talking to? I said, I got an interview tomorrow. And he said, who? And I said, Lori, you know, from New Mexico. He goes, oh yeah. He was very fond memories of the whole trip. And he was like, oh my gosh, tell her I said hello. And he, and he said, uh, did they catch that guy? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes. <laughs> This is a, a technical question. I should have asked it earlier. It's, it's going to be quick and probably a quick answer, but it's about the coordinates and the assignation of, uh, is that a word? Assignation, yes. yes. That is a word. Of, uh, of numbers to the target, which was one of the first things I just had the trickiest time wrapping my head around. It's like, the target is man-made. What is a target or whatever? Here's the number, one, eight, zero, you know, whatever mm-hmm. your target coordinates are. My question to you is, once those are assigned, you, I'm going to read this quote this from the top of page 132 of your book. Based on the current understanding of how these mysterious things work, the coordinates assigned to a specific target become that target's address in space-time, allowing any viewer to tap right in to that specific target again and again just by writing down the coordinate number. Correct. So my question to you is, that is true for any viewer, even someone who is not the primary person that first viewed the target. Once that number is assigned, that is assigned universally, or that number only works for the person who is the viewer or, or the collection of viewers that are viewing that target. Well, as I as I said in the book, you know, this is based on a limited amount of understanding that we have, that any of us have yes. about how this works. But based on all the thousands and thousands of, of targets I've assigned and that I've watched remote viewers view, it's yeah. my understanding uh, that when we repeatedly visit a target, when a target is visited or remote viewed, it becomes a thing where the more often a target is viewed, let's say the Eiffel Tower has been viewed millions of times, then the easier it becomes for anyone to view that target. Okay, so for anyone to view that target. So I compare it to like if you are going into a thick jungle and there's no trail and you have a machete and you start trying to hack your way through it, then a guy is behind you with a machete and he's trying to hack behind you and then there's a guy behind him. Subsequently, each person who's coming behind has an easier and easier job because the person in front of them is, is really helping to clear the way, right? So it's the same thing with remote viewing targets. They become easier to view, but not only for me to view, like every time I, if I go back and I view, I, I break and resume and view the same target 10 times. By the 10th time I'm resuming my session to view it, I'm gonna have a much easier time than I did the first time I viewed it. But also, if there's a lot of people viewing that target, it's going to be easier for all of us to view because we're, we're somebody's clearing the way and creating mem- what we call memory paths to the target. But do they all use those same coordinates that were arbitrarily created by the first viewer or the first task? To be honest with you, it's our understanding that the coordinates are not that relevant in the sense that um, I have a target, for example, that I've assigned, and I've, I've given it a different number like 10 times, just because okay. I, I That's what I was wondering. And for that was back when my computer files were not as well organized as they are now. I'd be like, where's that target of the guy on the camel? You know, and then I'd be like, right, oh, here right. it is. And I'd be like, oh, I can't find a number for it. I'll just give it a new number. So in that sense, I don't think it's that really that important. However, I have been instructed that it's not a good idea to give two different targets, the same target number, because then they become one target in space-time. Um, so we try to avoid and make sure that every single time a, a target is given, it at least has its own unique number that won't be 
copied by something else. So this comes back to your point that the intention of the tasker is an important component. I think so too, yes. Maybe maybe more important than the coordinates themselves. Uh, yes, because really the coordinates for the viewer are, are relatively unimportant in that what they basically serve to do is to allow your pen to be writing on the paper so you can quickly go into an ideogram, that scribble that we mentioned earlier called an mm -hmm. ideogram. Um, and I have done sessions on people where I've had, you know, back in the days when I would have people come visit me and ask for me to do a remote viewing session for them where I use their name as a coordinate. You know, and I just wrote their name, you know, Scott Philbrook, and do a quick ideogram and then say, hey, Scott. <laughs> What's this about you taking a trip down the you know, whatever? <laughs> wow, interesting. Well, this this goes uh, maybe into uh, like a description. I was going to ask you what's possibly happening when this occurs because this occurred to me twice in where I believe I got a lot from the uh, did really well at the targets. The photos that were hidden from my view uh, only assigned a number. And I don't feel so bad because I think this also happened with Joe McMonagle on that CBS uh, 60 Minutes interview where he did, which was one of the first things I saw where it was demonstrated or talked about. And of course, they're very, they're trying to be objective and very down the middle of the road, uh, as they should be. And they did a little quick uh, on the spot impromptu thing with him, uh, with Joe, in that he said uh, they went to Niagara Falls and he was supposed to find their their location. And he got some of it, but not all of it. And of course, the, the skeptical side was, well, there. look, you can be in any crowded public place. That, that's a monument, and you're going to get half that stuff anyway. And then Joe said, well, I don't really do well with waterfalls. I just never have. Everybody knows that. And so whatever you might be afraid of or whatever's stuck in your subconscious is being blocked. But when I did uh, my two targets, I got – it sounded like, uh, to me anyway, that I described a lot of where the central object in the photo – uh, all the surroundings, the type of terrain, uh, the fact that there's water there, or, you know, the first one I think we could talk about now uh, was an Egyptian obelisk that was being unearthed. Mm -hmm. So I remember the session very clearly. There's the first one that really, that, that was my Scott Philbrook moment where it really impacted me like, whoa, there's something going on here. Because I, I was getting, again, not pictures so much, but ideas of uh, different levels of old earth and terrain and it's weathered. There might be patches of, of green that's like old vegetation, but definitely different step levels, but barren. And so I get all these impressions that are actually more just ideas. And then, as I was saying earlier, my imagination or my mind would be like, well, that's what it would look like to me in my mind if I had to think about this or picture something. That's the images that popped up rather than vice versa. I didn't get the images first, then try to think about it. Anyway, <laughs> that's how it happens to, with me. I got, of course, that there was a, a big rectangular excavation pit happening, but I never picked up that there was an obelisk. On the second target, I got uh, the entire surrounding and that the, it was a very high bridge, I believe in France, where a famous marathon takes place. And I got that, yeah, there's water underneath, uh, there's banks, there's a large, tall uh, man-made structure uh, that's very tall with guy wires or, or some kind of um, stabilizing structure. But I never got that there was a marathon taking place on the bridge, even though it was kind of tiny. You could, you know, there's tens of thousands of people. It's like, oh well, that might have been something important to to notice. Uh, and then, like a third a third thing that happened with me is I, I remember uh, and I felt uh, a little crestfallen because I think uh, I was uh, the feedback I got from you and and uh, and the rest was I I didn't hit it, but I remember this target being well. First of all, I was asked to go to the target. The thing that popped up to my mind was that uh, kind of now famous art installation 
with the Cadillacs that are half stuck in the, in the dirt. And <laughs> oh, I can't. the Cadillac, Cadillac farm. Ranch. Yeah. Cadillac, yeah. Yeah. Cadillac Ranch. Amarillo, yeah. Texas. Okay. <laughs> and, and then they're all lined up. It's kind of a fun image. And uh, that's, I don't know why, but like that's the one time where an image popped into my head. I'm just like, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of an art. Uh, maybe it's an art installation. It's different things stacked or they're stacked or wedged in, but they're, but they're unusual. That they're, It's not a, an unusual stacking, but done purposefully in some way. But that's why I just thought like, yeah, a car or these cars stuck into the dirt. Well, it turns out the, the target photo was, uh, was a building in China of some kind of shop or, or office building where a guy had accidentally driven into the building. <laughs> so half the car is, is stuck in the building. Now, it's not the right direction. But the one thing I did get was that, yes, car stuck in thing not supposed to happen. Yeah, I didn't get yes. I didn't, but I didn't get any of the rest of it. And so you're like, well, you yeah, but that one didn't work so well, except I, I was kind of off. Anyway, what I'm getting at is that I don't feel so bad because uh, part of the other test that Joe McMonagall was given on the spot was the reviewer, or the, the reporter said, I have a little something in this box with a flip top lid. And it's a little wooden box. Can you tell me what's in the box? And uh, he was having trouble. I think maybe he said, uh, you know, maybe it's plastic, but he really couldn't get a, a picture. But he said, I'm getting the idea that it's red. Whatever is in that box is red. Well, they open it up, and it's a tiny plastic saxophone. Now, it's it's plastic, but he didn't get saxophone. He didn't get it's a miniature of something. But the interior of the box was a red velvet. So that's what he got. But it's not, you know, it's like you're you're there in a way, but you're, you're maybe not hitting on the exact object, but you're kind of really in that space. And I've heard before, it's like, you don't try and picture what's in the object. You try and picture what's in the box in a different well, way. Well, here's the it. thing. Remember that our job is to describe, not to identify. So right. when you viewed the obelisk, your job wasn't to say it's an obelisk. You're, you're, instead, you said, hey, this is some kind of an excavation. It's barren. It's brown. It's crumbly. It's dry. And you got all those things correct. And you were this was your like first target as a that brand was the very new, first week. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. As a brand when he new told me this, I fell out of my chair. It's right. like you're walking into your first martial art class. You they give you the white belt and tell you, okay, you're a white belt. Now learn to <laughs> you know wax on, wax off. And you're like, right. okay, I waxed on, waxed off, but I want to be a black belt. And you're like, well, you're right. not a black belt yet. You're still a white belt. <laughs> so then day two, you're still a white belt, and you're now describing the bridge in France and you're, you describe the bridge. Great. Do a great job. You, you sketch the bridge. You did all this stuff. And then you're like, but I didn't get that. It was a marathon. Well, your job is to describe, not to identify. And you did a great job of describing. Now, as mm. you gain experience, you might say, Oh, it's some sort, there's an event taking place on the bridge and it's a, right. it's a competitive event, et cetera, et cetera. But you, we still don't want you to name that it's a marathon because that's not your right. job. Then the third day, what was the third one again? The car with the yes, Asian right. man that, that he drove into the building. And so, yeah, that was a hilarious target, too. It looked really – the look <laughs> on that guy's face was pretty funny. Well, there's, yeah, there's a couple of guys viewing him, and they, they just said that, well, <laughs> yeah. I guess that happened. you know. Yeah. So he's – yeah, that the rescuers were kind of like, ah, oh, how are we going to get this one taken care of? But right. the thing, the funny thing is I love that you mentioned Cadillac Ranch. Uh, mm -hmm. To me just now, because I mean, I don't remember your session, to be honest, in this session, but I but the fact that you're saying it reminded you of Cadillac Ranch. It's really interesting because the way that as the, as the idea of it goes from the subconscious mind, which is not speaking in language, passing it through to the conscious mind, which wants to turn it into something. 
it gives you something like Cadillac Ranch with these Cadillacs shoved into the ground and this target where this guy has shoved his the front end of his car into a building there you can see the correlation there right it's Mm -hmm. very much like when I was doing that target with scaffolding and the tarp up in the Brazilian trees with the scientists who were they were examining bugs and dissecting bugs for medicinal purposes the one thing that kept coming to me was I kept thinking about when we would take refugees to the meatpacking plant, which was the only place that would hire them and would hire them at double uh, minimum rate. So you have a person who's been in the jungle who doesn't speak a word of English, has never seen a light switch, and you're now putting them to, they have to work because they have to support their family of 11 children. And you you take them out to the meatpacking plant, which isn't the most wonderful job in the world. But eventually right. they would get so used to it that they didn't notice the smell anymore. And to mm-hmm. them, it was just like a normal day at work. Whereas I would go out there and want to puke every time because it was so disgusting. That memory came to me while I was doing this target. And and Lynn said, well, how do you feel about this target? And I said, I think it's gross and disgusting and I would never want to do it. But the people at the target, for them, it's just a normal thing and they do it every day. And that was the analogy that came to me, though. And I didn't know what the target was, but I would not want to be dissecting bugs for medicinal right. purposes. And also <laughs> right. I wouldn't be, want to be climbing that scaffolding or anything. But to them, it was just like, this is a normal day of work for us, right? So it's interesting how that kind of a nuanced piece of information can come through to you and it comes through to you in a little story or an analogy or a memory. And that memory is not an accurate verbatim you know, representation of the target, but it's giving you concepts about the target that are valid. Right. Well, in that respect about how... Uh... The different methodologies uh, and and martial arts, uh, you know, there's all these different variations. Can you explain the differences between the the variations of remote viewing and that uh, what the differences between controlled remote viewing and extended remote viewing and associative remote viewing? Yes, to me, controlled remote viewing is a basket that can hold everything else because you can use a lot of different techniques within the CRV framework, and CRV is essentially a written structure that is just set up for the conscious mind to have something to do in remembering where to put everything on the page. But it's also like a basket in that it's a reporting mechanism to allow you to report what you're getting because a lot of people get psychic information, but then they don't know how to put it into any kind of a form that makes sense. And I've had people from other disciplines who will hand me a sheet of paper with words scribbled all over it that make no sense. So it's wonderful to have CRV that allows you to organize your information while you're getting it you know, in real time. Yeah. So that's awesome. You can use extended remote viewing in within the CRV framework. You can use associative remote viewing within the CRV framework. So that's why CRV to me is the superior method because mm. it can the other ones can be used like tools. You're going to grab us a hammer and you're going to use a hammer in this job. Now I'm going to hammer, I'm going to grab a screwdriver. I'm going to use a screwdriver in this job. And so they end up becoming, you know, like tools that you're going to grab to get the tool thing done. CRV is not very good for getting alphanumeric information, numbers and letters, because you're really focused on just extrapolating from the right brain, which is not an alphanumeric part of your brain. Mm-hmm. However, when you go into extended remote viewing, which where you allow yourself to just relax and hopefully you have a monitor there, uh, true extended remote viewing is done best with a monitor present. And so the monitor's job isn't to give you any information about the target. The monitor's job really is to help the viewer and keep the viewer safe. 
you know, oh, you need a glass of water? Oh, do you need to take a break? And then the viewer says something like, um, I see something tall. Would you like to move to the tall and tell me more about it? I mean, so they're never feeding the viewer information. They're only accepting the viewer's information and then asking the viewer to give more detail. And extended means they just, you're in this session for a very long time or as long as you No, I think to. extended means in the sense that you are extending your brain into mm. a hypnagogic state from an alert state, which you do in CRV, to a more extended uh, hypnagogic state where you're more, it's more dreamlike. And when the viewer is doing ERV normally and regular ERV states, the way that they did it in the unit is the viewer would lay down and they would have a monitor be recording all the information as they interviewed the viewer. But mm. uh, nowadays we're finding that if we do have a monitor, that a good viewer can literally toggle that line and continue writing and, write, and reporting while having a, basically a bilocation experience and using ERV as a tool at the same time while doing CRV. ARV is associative remote viewing. And what we're doing with ARV is we're associating something easy to view with something hard to view. I'm creating this ARV course and I, I talk about Artie and Gertie, the, C, the ARV couple. <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, Artie, uh, they want to know what's going to be the number that's going to pop up on the first ball of tonight's pick three lottery that comes up at seven o'clock tonight. And so Gertie goes in the kitchen. She finds stuff in her kitchen and she makes a list of the numbers one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and zero. And she associates a flavor in the kitchen with every number. So number one might be garlic. Number two might be lemon. Number three might be strawberry. Number four might be black licorice, you know, et cetera. Number mm -hmm. five might be, might be vanilla pudding. You know, number six might be onions, whatever. So you go through and you have this whole list. And then she, all she does is she comes in and she says, hey, Artie, move to tonight at 7.15 and tell me what you taste. <laughs> and Artie says, I taste black licorice. And mm -hmm. she says, okay. Then she says, okay, that means the number that's going to come up on the ball is going to be the number four because that's the one that's associated with black licorice. And then what happens is at 7.15, by that time, because the ball came up at seven o'clock, so now they know what the number is, right? Right. They know what number came up on that ball. So she's got to look at the list of foods and say, oh, uh, the number was, let's say, whatever number it is. Therefore, I must feed Artie that particular taste. If it mm -hmm. truly is number four, then right at 7.15, she's going to give Artie black licorice so that he can taste it because what you're doing now this is going to blow your listeners mind but this is a thing yeah. called retro causality and what you're doing is you're actually asking Artie when you come in and you say hey Artie move to 715 and tell me what you taste you're asking Artie's mind to move to that moment and he's moving to a moment that you are planning to create when you give him that licorice right, right. you're planning to create that moment and then he's feeding that information back to himself through time which we call a CRV time loop now, one of the mistakes a lot of people make is they'll say, well, let's see, it's 7.15, I need to give Artie black licorice because he said he was going to taste black licorice. But what if number four isn't the right number? Let's say number right. one is the right number, and that's garlic. Mm -hmm. Well, then at 7.15, you've got to give Artie garlic, not black licorice. <laughs> you want to give him the taste that corresponds to the accurate answer. Right. 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 Um, and so it's really interesting how all that works. We get into a thing talking about retrocausality, how the future literally creates the past and how we can actually influence decisions and we can influence mm -hmm. our past by simply creating events in the future that will feed back into the past and cause the past to happen. 
I learned all about this from Bill and Ted. From, from Bill and Ted? Bill and Ted. Yes, absolutely. Because they did this. And they're in the police station. Remember, here's what we'll do. After this, I'll go back home. I'll put the car keys behind the desk. Okay. And then they would go and the keys were behind the desk because they did it later. <laughs> well, you're beating that uh, path with the machete between past, present, and future. Right. And that now you're now you're cementing that loop. Exactly. I'll tell you a quick story. I had a student, we were gonna do a thing at like this was years ago when I was still a student too. But um this student was going to uh, we were all gonna view a target that Lynn assigned, and then we were gonna go onto his website and actually look at the feedback before the meeting, and then we were gonna um come to the meeting and just talk about our experience. Mm-hmm. And so she was doing her session and she became convinced that the target Lynn had assigned was the plane crashing into the Pentagon on September 11th, which Lynn would never give to its right, right. ever. But she became convinced that that was what, what it was going to be. And then she did her whole session. She did her summary. She looked at the feedback. It had nothing to do with that. She thought, oh, well, you know, okay. So she sits down, turns on the TV, and there's a general talking about the plane crashing into the Pentagon September 11th. So she gets very excited. Here's the key. She gets very excited. Emotion, it becomes a temporal attractor. She gets real excited. She grabs her session. She starts comparing everything she wrote down to what he's saying. Then she Googles it. And she adds more fuel to that fire. She literally caused herself to view the wrong target by creating that moment in time where she's all excited about Mm. viewing the wrong target very well. She completely diverted herself to the wrong target by having that event in the future. If she had never looked at that television, if she had stayed very non-committal and non-emotional, it probably wouldn't have happened. But because she made it a big temporal attractor, like if I ask you, if I have a picture of the Pearl Harbor Monument that I just took into Hawaii yesterday, Mm -hmm. and I say, can you view that? And instead you view the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Well, the bombing of Pearl Harbor is a temporal attractor. It's an attractor across the pond of time, bombs blowing up, explosions, people screaming, running smoke, everything. Emotion, highly emotional target. That's much more easy to view across the horizon of time than the boring current day monument. Right. Yeah, but it's already getting fed the licorice when garlic was the answer. (laughs) <laughs> and that, yeah, it's 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 now reinforced in the future or at that time, but it's not the right thing. Why are you adding the extra step? Why not just say to Artie, what's the number? Because numbers are left brain things. And, and, and that's why you don't hear about a million psychics remote viewing or a million psychics viewing the lottery, winning lottery numbers, because numbers are a man-made construct that come from the left brain. That's why math is a left brain function. Artie has to be kept in the dark. Right. Artie has to be totally in the dark. Um, and uh, the thing, too, is that Artie may like I have done sports games. I probably shouldn't say this publicly because people <laughs> will then be hounding me. But in every single associative remote viewing class that I teach, we do a, a major sports game and we'll, we'll do a sports game. And, and I have this whole technique where you can determine who's going to win way before the fact. And we have uh, I've been teaching since, I don't know, many, many, many years. And I've done this every time and we have a hundred percent success rate in determining who's going to win. And many times the, it's the underdog. We've come up with the underdog. And then the last time we did it, which was just two or three months ago, it was a tie and we, we determined that it was going to be a tie and it was a tie. So mm. it's really fun. It's really amazing how it works. And we have a hundred, we have never missed 
ever using this. Well, now, when you say that, it, it, this is a class that you do this. Yes, in? it's during the the associative remote viewing class. It's coming up in like two weeks. Wow. The uh, the next associative remote viewing class that I'm teaching is actually in three weeks. Exactly three weeks from today. It's February eighth through tenth, twenty twenty two. If you're interested and you want to take ARV, you can sign up for it at my website at intuitivespecialists.com. And that's an S at the end of specialists, intuitivespecialists.com. That'll be so much fun. And oh, oh, so this is what I was going to ask you in terms of that class when you've said that 100%, is that based on every single student coming to the same conclusion or whoever, what's in the majority of? No, it's based on as a class, us determining, okay, you know, X team is going to win. The Broncos okay. are going to win or whatever. Yeah. And so what we do is when we, when we have the, the consensus, I'll yeah. say, okay, well, according to you guys, the Broncos are going to win. Let's say I'm just using the Broncos as an yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. The, according to you guys, the Broncos are going to win. So now we have to state, I mean, the game's not going to be over for two hours, but we're going to state that, as a class, we are predicting that the Broncos are going to win. Okay. And then what we have to do is, what we usually do is we pull up the game shortly before it ends so that we can have the emotional impact of watching. And oftentimes, mm. believe it or not, we're, it's like the game has like 10 minutes left and the other side is winning, the ones we did not predict. And then right at the last minute, the, ga- the side we predicted pulls ahead and wins. It's been, there's been so many times that's happened. And, and like the odds of that team winning were like incredible. If we'd bet, we would have won a ton of money because there was like no chance they were going to win. And the thing is, everybody's really excited, right? We're all watching. And of course, it's always very exciting in the game too. The announcer's yelling and everybody's cheering and there's all kinds of stuff that's going on. So it makes for, we are creating a temporal attractor on purpose, right? Right. And so we're all excited and we're all watching. And then when the, our prediction is accurate, everybody's like, yeah. And we all get excited, <laughs> even though usually there's at least two or three people in the class that maybe didn't vote for the right thing. But the thing is, they don't even know what they're voting on because we do it all with sound. We do it like Artie and Gertie. But what we do is instead of using numbers like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and zero uh, and using food, we're using sound and we have three envelopes, envelope A, B, and C. We don't know what's in the envelopes. And we I associate a sound that the students don't know what I'm associating. They have no idea. Um, so I associate a sound with each envelope. And then I make sure they're very distinct from each other, that they're not similar at all. And then I ask them to move to a certain point in time when I know the game will be over and describe the sound they're hearing. And I say, don't name it. Don't name that sound. Because otherwise you might say, oh, it's a bell or it's a cow or it's a grill or whatever. No, I want you to describe it. And describing it's trickier. Is it staccato or is it steady? Is it high pierced or low pierced? You know, what's the tone involved? Is it a grating sound or a smooth, sweet sound? You know what I mean? So they have to describe the sound. And then I have to be the judge and I have to look at the what I've written. I just still don't know what's in the envelopes, but I have written you know, like I've written a sound on each envelope and I have to, then as they tell me, as they each one by one tell me, well, it was kind of like this. I'm marking the envelope that most closely resembles the sound they're describing. And inevitably, like I'll have a class of 14 to 20 people and inevitably we'll have a pretty high percentage, like, like literally with most of the students picking one of those sounds and maybe two or three picking something else. But if it's a high majority, then we know we've really got a great majority. And then you open the envelopes, all the envelopes. And that's when you say, oh, okay, well, according to you guys, the Broncos are going to win. And the other envelope, like, so let's say envelope A says, 
Broncos. And envelope B says Buccaneers. And envelope C says none of the above or not applicable. Because you always want an option. What if there's a bomb scare and the game doesn't end? Or what right. if you know? Or what if it's a tie? And so this last class that I taught for the first time in all the years I've done this, everybody voted for the envelope that said not applicable. And so I said, well, that indicates that either something's going to happen and the game won't end, or it's going to be a tie. And it was mm -hmm. a tie. It went into mm -hmm. overtime and it was still a tie at the end. Would this work without the temporal attractor where you later watched and celebrated the finding the solution? The most important thing is that at the time you designated, like 715, you play the sound that is associated with the correct answer. So if you predicted the Broncos were going to win and they did win, then we're playing the sound that I wrote on that envelope. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, so I use a sound app on my phone for that. Oh, very cool, very cool. Well, uh, final question for me anyway, and probably Scott, is about perhaps the second most popular thing you were ever asked to remote view or people want to know about, especially our audience perhaps, aside from gambling, and that is <laughs> remote viewing let's say paranormal subjects. The last time I think I caught you on Coast to Coast AM, again, being interviewed by Connie Willis. And I think it was way back long enough that you were, we were talking, I think you and I, and you were saying, well, you know, they're going to have to ask these. It's not my favorite topic perhaps or target, but of course people find this interesting, but she's going to ask, where's Bigfoot? So <laughs> how do you feel about that? And and is that possible to do? How do you feel about re uh, remote viewing, uh, I guess, I don't know, corny or just not serious targets to a lot of people? But of course, those are the things that people want to know. Where is it? Does it exist? Is it real? What's your take on that? Well, now that I've been doing this since 1996, I have to say that I have become much more involved and more tolerant to targets that I used to poo-poo <laughs> and used to not right. like viewing, mainly right. because they have opened up my aperture so much and given me a whole different perspective on things. Connie blind tasked me with Bigfoot at one point to share on Coast to Coast. And it's in the Coast to Coast archives. And it became one of the one of my favorite targets that I've ever viewed. And it, and really? it was Really, uh, yeah, it ended up being such an amazing experience, truly an experience, where I felt like I connected with a highly intelligent, perhaps trans-dimensional being hmm. that explained things that I thought were so far out there, I was afraid to talk about them on the air because I thought people are going to think I have a screw loose. And then I later found out that, oh, yeah, everybody that knows anything about Bigfoot knows that's to be true. Um, and then I've also talked to several people from Native American tribes who go, oh, yes, everyone knows that, for example, Bigfoot is a time traveler. I got that in my session. And I thought, <laughs> that's so wild. I can't say that publicly. And then, then it turns out, like, everybody knows that. You know? <laughs> and I felt like an idiot. You know, like, well, God, everybody knows that. And so it's just like, oh, yeah. OK. You know, but for me, I had no background with Bigfoot. I, I, I had never thought about Bigfoot. It was just not part of my mental process of thinking about Bigfoot. I never thought about it. I know some people are really into Bigfoot. I wasn't. But the events that happened after I did that show and we talked about Bigfoot, then all kinds of really strange weirdness happened in my life. And, uh, I, and we actually, they had me on another show just to talk about everything that happened after I did the session, because it was so phenomenal, the things that happened afterwards. And so it's kind of, you know, an amazing story. And, and I've heard since then that Bigfoot is a connector and likes to bring people together. 
Um, so it's pretty fascinating. And I, I probably won't go into it now because it would, t- it would go on for 20 yeah. minutes telling you the story. But <laughs> I, so I've gotten more tolerant of those types of targets. I mm-hmm. also have done a lot of UFO and off-planet targets. I, in, in, over, the, in t- over a period of 20 years, I was tasked with the dark side of the moon three different times by three different taskers who hmm. did not know each other and did not know they were all tasking me with that. And each time I didn't know what I was viewing. I was only told, if I was told anything at all, it was the target is a location described the target. So it could be anywhere. And each time I found the same exact description. Um, so I seemed to go to the same place on the dark side of the moon every time, but I always found mining operations. I discovered, you know, I always always find mining operations going on on the dark side of the moon and some pretty phenomenal stuff. You know, so. Well, it, it doesn't have to be aliens. I mean, a lot of people believe that uh, we had Apollo missions that did not show up on the books, and the U.S. and maybe some other countries are there secretly mining whatever they mine there. And uh, we've certainly had some letters from people who, who didn't believe that because they didn't believe helium-3 was uh, something worth mining on the dark side of the moon. But you're not the only one to say that, Lori. Uh, our good friend now and one of our uh, most popular interviewees Terry Lovelace also had something very similar to say that was relayed information that he didn't see himself. It was relayed to him if you take his story to be accurate. So there you go. We're, we're seeing little dots connected here in very strange ways. Lori, we, I can't thank you. This has been so much fun. We've kept you twice as long as I intended to. I apologize. <laughs> oh, um, I knew that was going to happen. Yeah. yeah that, that, um, we got us rolling and that's going to happen. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about your latest book, which is what compelled you to reach out to us about coming back on the show, which we were thrilled to do. It's so funny because usually when authors write a book, they do a book launch, right? I wrote the book and published it in 2019 and then only recently really learned about book launches. And so I was really encouraged by a book coach that I have, you know, why don't you do a launch for this book? You never launched it. So then I did a big thing to do a launch and we made the price of the Kindle book 99 cents. And it's even, it's always been free on Kindle Unlimited if people are subscribed to that. But uh, so the book is Boundless, Your How-To Guide to Practical Remote Viewing. We launched it and and we had thousands, we, we actually reached bestseller status in five categories on Amazon and stayed there for like two months. Um, so Boundless is really a great book if you want a down-to-earth ex- explanation of how to do the first phase of CRV. You know, it's really a, a good explanation, and it's I tried to make it easy enough that because every book I've ever seen on remote viewing that actually taught you how to do it just seemed really like over most people's heads and too difficult to try to figure out. So I, I wanted to really bring it down to earth, which is why I tell stories that illustrate points, you know, in the book and things like that. So it's a fun read. It's not boring. And it's a, it's a fun how-to book. I'm about a third of the way of this with the next one, which will teach how to do phases two and three. And my goal is eventually to have all six phases in a book form. But um, meanwhile, it's like, uh, well, Lori, what are you doing between midnight and 5 a.m.? Why don't you get the book written then? You know? um, so, because right now, you know, did, the days are long. Also, I really want your your listeners to know that there is a free remote viewing class on my website that you can sign up for. You know, you'll be able to sign up for it and, and be able to get, a, a, it's, it's not a sales pitch. It's a true remote viewing class. You guys have taken it. And that's my point. My purpose was just to give you the opportunity to experience remote viewing without having to pay any money. Because for some people, you know, the the structure of CRV is like, oh, my God, why would anyone want to do that? And then but for probably that's like one out of 10. But the other nine are like, 
this is awesome because yeah. it's so dependable. And, you know, just like step one, do this, step two, do that, just step three, do that. And then you got, wow, hey, all of a sudden I'm really able to access and control my psychic ability through step-by-step process. How easy is that? <laughs> yeah. And the, the thing I love is that often the people who are the most skeptical trying to debunk it, take it for the first time and they do some of the best sessions out of anyone. It's so true. (laughs) (laughs) I had a couple come to take my class. The wife was the one who wanted to take it. The husband just came to see what she's getting into, right? To make sure she's not joining a cult or something. And the guy was an engineer and the wife was an author. And at the third day, he had done so well you know, and he didn't even believe in it. And he was mm-hmm. nailing everything. She's like, this is not fair. This is, I'm into this. He should be doing better than me. <laughs> that's great. Well, that, well, that's, again, it's, you've gone so far around the other way of the uh, lemon of penetrating that barrier that we can't get through is that it's like us walking into the Sally house. <laughs> there you go. I had to mention that. And just saying that, uh, oh, where's the gift shop? This is quaint. And then it's more than that, buddy. And then you get, to, you get, a, little, uh, you get a little pinch from the other side. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. wake up. There's more to your reality. Uh, or as Russell Targ said, if you think that's who you are when you look at the bathroom mirror, you're in for a lot of pain and torment. Russell Tark used to terrify me when I would give talks <laughs> at the Urban conventions. They would say, how, well, do you, you know, how much time do you want for Q&A? I don't want any time for Q&A because Russell's <laughs> going to get up and ask me stuff and give me a hard time. And then Russell and I became friends and, and he was very involved in Third Eye Spies and he got to actually watch me teach. And he, he, he commented to Lance, the, the guy who was the filmographer, and said, wow, Lori can really teach this, you know? And so <laughs> he, he and I ended up, you know, developing a friendship. I I love his spirituality and I love his sense of humor. He's what you'd call a sleeper. You know, he just, yeah. you would not, just by looking at him, you would not expect him to be the way he truly is. And, and he's pr- quite an amazing character. I love Russ. But anyway, so I do hope that your listeners will take advantage of the free class and they can take advantage of the book, which is still really cheap. You know, you can get it really inexpensively on Kindle or uh, get a paperback version. Uh, the paperback version is, is a little more expensive, but it's it's because we had to print it in color. And so color is expensive. Even for me to buy the books, it's expensive. So just so you know, uh, in the paperback version is a little bit more expensive because I had to make the targets that you're going to work in the book in color. So you can determine the colors, right? So anyway, it's a fun book and it does take you really, it takes you through the the first eight hours that I teach when I teach a three-day course. So you're, you're actually getting- It completely brought me back to the course that I took from you. It was a nice, for me, it was coming back to something I'd already done. And so as a, it was very familiar and easy to comprehend. So the, the book is Boundless, Your How-To Guide to Practical Remote Viewing, Phase One by Lori Lambert-Williams. We'll have a link to it in our show notes, of course. Uh, Lori, thank you so much for spending so much time with us and our listeners. Yes, thank you so much. Guys, thank you for having me. It's always so much fun to talk with you guys. It's always a blast. And it's never any effort either. You know, it just flows so seamlessly and so fun. Thanks so much. Well, folks, that was our first take on remote viewing. We may come back to it. Uh, we may not, no matter what happens. <laughs> right. At this moment, it's my intention to study it the rest of my life. Mm. I'm going to get into it. I want to take more classes. And I'm not going to be talking to anybody here about how it works out for me. No. So, or when we win the lottery, you'll just, uh, I think the show will just stop. And then we don't yeah. say anything more about it. <laughs> I don't owe you an explanation. <laughs> thanks for being with us. So long and thanks, thanks for all the fish. a lot. Yeah.
Yeah, and that's the best, Douglas Adams. But one of the questions I have, and I'm not generally conspiratorial-minded person, Mm. which is why you may neither of us are. We don't cover the 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 really out there conspiracies a lot on Astonishing Legends. No, but there there is a part of me that does wonder, especially with regard to Pat Price. Mm -hmm. uh, Well, first of all, I do think he could have been assassinated. Absolutely, could have been assassinated. Possibly. But on the other hand, it's also feasible to me, considering the power he had, which technically Pat Price and Joe McMonagall, who's still with us, and some of these other early viewers, and probably even people still today, Mm -hmm. you cannot keep something from them. If you believe this works, if you believe any of this at Mm -hmm. all, there are no secrets from these people. When they're under the auspices of the U.S. military, that's a significant amount of power to have, or the Soviet military, or the Russian military, I should say, or anyone else. That's a lot of power to have, and you could see where that might warrant some kind of witness protection and or an assassination yeah, yeah. in those cases, especially during the Cold War back then. Yeah. Stuff happens, people think, oh, that's outrageous, that's crazy, that doesn't happen. It, well, there is such a thing as the Witness Protection Program with new identities. Also, it happens on a very local, smaller level. And this was just on the news, <laughs> it was it on uh, uh, Inside Edition. Uh, they they caught whiff of this uh, woman plotting to uh, kill her husband at the time. And uh, she asked her boyfriend at the time uh, to carry through with it. But he also, she didn't like his 13-year-old daughter. So th- she was also on the hit list. And that's when he said, I'm going to go to the police now. I'm going to go to the FBI. Yeah. And they right. did a sting. They had a fake death where he was shown, her husband was shown in a car with a window blown out, supposedly, which they just rolled it down and threw a bunch of uh, safety glass on him. And they say, well, right. there you go. He's dead. And of course, they got her in a sting. That stuff happens. So yeah. uh, it, it is, it's not that hard. It's like to secure him, it's like, well, Pat, uh, we've gotten whiff that uh, they want You're to, in danger. somebody wants to kill the golden goose. So we're just going to, we're going to squirrel you away somewhere else. That stuff isn't that outrageous. Right. A lot of other conspiracy stuff that, that really, yeah, we're not going to tip into that because it does sound kind of really outrageous. I think there were some comments that like, man, I tuned out when Lori said she remote viewed Mars and that sounds nutso and... It's too woo-woo. Well, guess what? There is a declassified report on a military viewer viewing Mars. It will stun you. It will blow you away. If what he's reporting in his session is accurate, it's really interesting and it's great sci-fi, but just know that that was a military viewer. That report went to the CIA. They don't like that's pranks right. and jokes. <laughs> and that's currently like, what, what they would call an unverifiable target right, right now. Right. But not for all time. It is not for all time no. an unverifiable target. Right. So, well, uh, again, one makes you wonder what has been discovered and what you don't get told. And that I know that sounds conspiratorial, but this is a report done by one of the early, I believe, main viewers. And I don't know if uh, this could have been one of McMonagall's targets or... Mel Riley's. I don't think there is a viewer number associated. There is a CIA document number for this. And this session was done on May 22nd, 1984. And it says here, it starts off, uh, the sealed envelope was given to the subject immediately prior to the interview. The envelope was not opened until after the interview. In the envelope was a three by five card with the following information. The planet Mars. Time of interest, approximately 1 million years B.C. Selected geographic coordinates provided by the parties requesting the information were verbally given to the subject during the interview. 
again, this is May 22nd, 1984. What I will say is that if this is a true document, which it seems to be, it's in the, the FOIA info document dump, possibly one of those 270 pages that the CIA transferred over to the National Archives. If this is real, you can't prove what's going on here. But what it tells me is like, somebody asked for this officially. Somebody with the government, could be, I don't know who, I don't know whom, somebody requested this session be conducted by remote viewers. Rowdy Roddy Piper. <laughs> That's who asked for it. He I'm was just trying out of to get gum. an assessment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had the glasses. Here's what people do know. I mean, uh, we're having fun here, but here's what people know or what I what you can assume from this report because, okay, let's say that this is in the National Archives. This is a real document. This really did happen to be tasked. Maybe somebody's having fun, but again, they're not out for pranks because they're wasting their time on real military targets here. So their time is precious. This is, you don't be goofing around asking about, uh, you know, little green Martian men. They gave him coordinates. They knew exactly where on Mars they wanted him to look. So let's say, let's get nuts on this. Let's, let's say this is NASA, somebody at NASA in the high up uh, levels, uh, somebody in the Pentagon. They had some information that maybe something was going on in these areas. And that's why they had this remote viewer, this uh, soldier in the Stargate unit, take a look at those specific spots. Why those spots? So think about the story here. It's one thing for Lori to say that she remote viewed Mars. And then you see documentation that uh, somebody currently in the CIA Stargate program was tasked with viewing Mars. And when you read both reports, because they're both available, so one's is a PDF, we'll have a link to our webpage. The other one is a story on Lori's website you can read. And you compare the two, it's quite interesting. There's a lot of things that lined up. They're slightly different. But my point is that I think in both cases, somebody officially asked both of them to remote view Mars. And it was official, at least in this CIA doc from 1984, Somebody from the government knew something was there or had a suspicion at these coordinates on Mars, something is there. Now, I'll ask you, Scott, can you plug those into Google Mars? Can you plug, oh, you can plug in coordinates? I think so. I don't, I've never tried okay. it, but I've read that you can. I think yeah. we're going to try this. As soon as we have a little bit of time, we're going to try plugging these coordinates in because they give them to yeah. you in this document. So imagine you have this photo as your feedback, and you're not sure if it's the lunar surface or it's the surface of Mars, but apparently, it's an off-planet, dusty surface. And here you see a rover track in the foreign planet surface. And next to that track is a boot print. That's going to wrap up our series on controlled remote viewing. A very special thanks to Lori Williams for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. C.G. Mosley. Hi, my name is Adam. Eric. And Tori. M-A-N-J-O-E. I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. 
But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.